Amen. Be a good marine and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 83, and my name's Jakob. And my name's Nick. And today, Randy's not with us today, by the way, so Randy's uh, on a well-deserved day off. Um, but today we have a special guest. We have Daryl from the Cage Rage podcast with us. So the expert is in the room. How are you doing, Daryl? Hello. Uh, you, I said before, before we start recording, you're giving me so much credit here. <laughs> There's a, the weight of the cage world on my shoulders. It's incredibly generous of you. Shush. Uh, it's, uh, other than that, uh, I am well. I am good. Um, I've re-immersed myself in the, the fun-filled fields of war, World War II, um, my favourite of the two world wars. Um, <laughs> maybe. Um, That's I'm, a weird I'm, thing to say. <laughs> Oh, don't, oh, if that's weird, don't listen to the podcast. Um, <laughs> amazing way to sell myself at the start. Um, but no, thank you very much for uh, for having me here. It's a delight to be here and uh, looking forward to uh, getting right into the trenches with you both. Yeah, cool. I mean, I think it just has to be mentioned, just in case you, you guys have been living under a rock and you don't know, <laughs> Daryl is a world-renowned Nicholas Cage expert, as the uh, title of his podcast suggests, uh, where they go one by one through, through Nicholas Cage's filmography. And this is just amazing. I've, like, I, I started listening to the show, by the way, in, in the gym. Like, it's, like, it, it's such a, like, your soothing voice is oh, so great you. when you're lifting. <laughs> so, just uh, just gonna put it up, put it like that, but yeah, I think I'm gonna binge through the whole thing anyway. So go and go and find that. Um, we'll we'll put that, put a link to I think either your Twitter handle or 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 some or some some something in the show notes as well. So that will be easily accessible from there. But I'm pretty sure if you just type it into your search engine or in your Apple Podcast or Spotify, you'll definitely find it. Anyway, before we begin quick patreon plug of what's on on our patreon so the jcvd plus hong kong mini retrospective where the boys talked about maximum risk double team i can't do it with a straight face every single week uh and a knockoff is available on our patreon for so the whole compliment i think at this point the whole compliment of august episodes is available so the hard-boiled bon- bonus tie-in to this current running series is available to listen as well and at this point also, the Lost Highway addition to our David Lynch Marathon will have been dropped in there. So we can go ahead and listen. And also, just a gentle reminder, because at this point, if you're listening and it's still August, then you will still be able to uh, to, to hear our Firewalk With Me episode for free in there. So patreon.com slash uncutgemspod is where you want to go. Three bucks a month ain't much, but it will support us and then will help us keep lights on and pay for the server of our website, which is, by the way, on cutgemspodcast.com. So I might as well just plug that too. Anyway, so that's enough of me plugging things. No, it's not. Sorry. <laughs> might as well. <laughs> on the September, like I might as well just say September 9th, if you live in Charlottetown in Prince Edward Island, or if you live nearby, and I don't know what nearby means in Canadian <laughs> terms, because Randy <laughs> lives there, and he says, the it's, a short, 
it's a short drive, four and a half hours behind the wheel. It's just kill me now. <laughs> I mean, I could drive to Scotland <laughs> that time. Uh, uh, but, you know, maybe not to Scotland. Probably Newcastle is probably <laughs> as far as I would go from where I live. Um, anyway, so if you live in Prince Edward Island or somewhere nearby, uh, the Charlottetown, uh, I think Classics at City Cinemas is going to be showing Freebie and the Bean uh, to honor the memory of James Caan. And Randy's going to be there to co-host uh, together with the organizers of the show. And then I think there's going to be a little bit of a sort of gimmick draw. So you'll be able to win a t-shirt with the show logo if you uh, if you do a few things in there that Randy's going to tell you to do. I'm not sure what his plans are, but no, that, that's pretty much the spiel. So if you 9th of September, there's going to be this, a screening in Charlottetown. And on the same day, the episode of our conversation about this film is going to drop on our main podcast feed. So we'll be able to go and listen after you've seen the film, so you'll be able to compare notes and then you know, go and celebrate James Caan's uh, memory. Anyway, now, enough of that. August continues. We're almost there. <laughs> so our, our month-long series of move, of episodes where we talk about John Woo's Hollywood films continues today with Wind Talkers. Jeff, sons of bitches snuck up on us, shot me right in the ass. You believe that shit? I wasn't running or nothing. Yeah. So your uh, your duty with Jasco have anything to do with these Navajo radio men? I'm not a liberty to say. I see you got a new stripe there. Me too. So I'm guessing the same orders you ain't liberty to tell me are the same orders I ain't liberty to tell you. Tell the thing, huh? A democracy sergeant and some Marines. Yeah. Look pretty normal, I guess. Expecting them to wear war paint. I mean, we ought to go introduce ourselves, look a little lost to me. Anderson. I wouldn't get too friendly. Wind Talkers stars Nicolas Cage, Adam Beach, Peter Stormare, Christian Slater, Mark Ruffalo, a bunch of other folks, and follows a veteran Marine Sergeant, I think Joe Enders is his name, who's asked to look after a Navajo code talker, Ben, during the American operation to retake the island of Saipan from the Imperial Japanese Army. And the moral twist on this story is that he's, and this task is kind of complicated by the fact that he's not so much asked to look after the code talker, but about after the code itself. So if Ben were to fall in enemy hands, Joe may have to kill him himself. And that's sort of the, sort of the big moral conundrum underpinning this World War II drama uh, directed by John Woo. So the film was made following this, I think, the, fi- the financial success of Mission Impossible 2, and despite its sort of critical backlash, I think. Uh, and it was supposed to be, uh, a, let's just call it a dramatic breakout for John Woo. So it was supposed to be his prestige film. And then I suppose his Hollywood currency was still pretty hot. Um, and it was filmed in, I think, all throughout two, the year 2000, was supposed to be released in thing no award season so november december 2001 and i think 9-11 kind of ruined ruined the party for everyone so it was pushed by a few hmm. months until june 2002 and trimmed from i think essentially what was an nc-17 rating on account of massive violence uh it was since released by uh i think on blu-ray as a director's cut um anyway 
So because it was a prestige production, people like James Horner were involved and and a lot of money was spent to kind of just try and capitalize, I think, on partially on the sort of continuing clout of saving Private Ryan and the like. Uh, and so they hired a lot of real Marines to, hire, to, to, to kind of just pose as extras, practical stunts, pyrotechnics, the works. And then, you know, Navajo people, speaking people were hired to kind of just, and I think one, one of the guys ended up in the film as well as one of the characters. Nick Cage learned Navajo for this because why not? Um, and it didn't help because the film bombed. I think it earned $77 million on a $116 million budget. Jeez. It was praised for its special effects, but it was also derided for being a pile of cliches. And then, like, I don't really want to quote Roger Ebert because him and I, we don't see eye to eye very often. Um, uh, but yeah, that's pretty much the story of the film. It was a bit of a flop. And then, I don't want to say a nail in the coffin to John Woo's career in Hollywood, but it didn't really help uh, you know, maintain its currency. And also, I think it was criticized for inserting native characters in secondary roles. So I, I think the word whitewashing was kind of used a little bit in there. But I'm not sure. But they, they did hire real native uh, native characters, uh, actors, I think, in the in the key, in the key roles that, that mattered, I think, to the story. Anyway, so that's enough of me talking for now. And then let's just open our own deliberations. So what do you guys think about Wind Talkers? Where do you stand on this? So let's just start with our esteemed guest, Daryl. Why don't you why don't you tell us what do you think about Wind Talkers? Well, it's interesting, Wind Talkers. It's a very interesting, tantalizing on paper prospect of reuniting John Woo with Nicolas Cage after face off, reuniting him with Christian Slater as well, and the idea of giving John Woo uh, a war film and I suppose you know, um, if there's one person out there in the world who sort of understands um, as, as weird a sentence as this is to say, how to sort of make violence beautiful and find like the, like make it a dance almost if you send a number of films like Hard Boiled, for example. Um, this is like a very exciting prospect of, um, you know, John Woo and, and the, taking on like a World War Two scenario. And it's, it's, it's something to, you touched on there about the, sort of the whitewashing as well. I'm sure we'll get more into that because this is uh, this is a story like the Navajo Code talkers, the Unbreakable Code that sort of helped um, to, I guess, quote unquote, the good guys win the war. It was an Unbreakable Code, um, and there was a you know an untold story to be told here. But um, when I was rewatching this last night, it's kind of like. Well, how can we take this story of sort of like Native Americans, sort of the Navajo, who were so instrumental in the um, certainly the the American effort in World War Two, and how can we make that about white men? Um, <laughs> which is, which you, I guess, kind of symptomatic certainly for Hollywood at the time as well. As it's supposed to come out December two thousand and one, and what better way to celebrate Christmas than with a war film? Um, <laughs> Comes out in 2000 and, uh, June 14, 2002, if my old notes were correct. And from what I read, it went straight to number three at the box office, but was beaten by The Born Identity at number two and Scooby-Doo at number one. So that's where the world's um, loyalties lay at that time, and um, and not with Nicolas Cage. Um, it had a few things going for it, and I always wonder, you know, if this film was made now... Um, 
I think the, the the cultural reaction to it would be a lot different. There'd be a lot more mm. eyes on it. Um, it's obvious to say that as as a very you know with a very sort of, as much as I loathe the term, a very woke perspective. But um, I think back then people just didn't care for the story. You can certainly tell there was the classic Hollywood producer men in suits influence behind it. Like, yeah, oh, we got to make this a war film, action film. It could have been a great story about sort of friendship and loyalty and uncovering more of like the Navajo. Um, and it said it, when I recorded my episode on this, I didn't know anything sort of about sort of like the Navajo. There's so many smaller untold important stories there. Um, but what we get as obviously um, Nicholas Cage is front and center on the poster He's still at that point in time a very, very bankable star. And a few years ago, he's won the the Oscar for uh, for leaving Las Vegas. Um, he's still got a high, high acclaim. We're not even close to his 2010s straight to DVD <laughs> phase. And believe me, I've said all of them. I know. Um, <laughs> but it, I think, you know, as we said, this this could have been. They should have had the characters. I think even still of like Ben Yatsi and uh, his friend Whitehorse, more front and centre and central to the story. But then the main story becomes the B story to the story of Nicolas Cage's character, Joe Enders, having PTSD, um, which, and also kind of being deaf in one ear, but that never comes back in any way, shape or form. He just, he just loves killing Japs. Um, <laughs> I mean, it comes back in one scene, right? They remember the screenwriters. Like, yeah, we can use this. <laughs> you can have a purpose. The, uh, well. when, when, when the Japanese are beating on him and Ben's like, what is going on? Why is he... Like, he just slapped him. <laughs> yeah, like, ah. There's a lot of inconsistent damage in this because people take grenades right to the... Like, people are getting, like, their ass cheeks clapped by grenades and just, like, busted <laughs> yep. up. Like, whoa, like, it's kind of an episode of the A-Team. Yep. Uh, and then one guy loses a leg. There's people with like limbs getting cut off and like being shot with like bullets. So it it just depends about where you rank in the plot of important characters, how badly you're damaged. Um how badly you're damaged by this. Um <laughs> but like grenades, it's fifty fifty. If you were if you were on the island in World War Two, there's a fifty fifty chance you're gonna survive a grenade. According to this film, I don't know, I wasn't there. Or was I? <laughs> Um, I'll never, I'll never, I'm actually a hundred years old. Um, but I, I think to condense that into like a too long, didn't listen, um, could have been good. Wasn't as good as it should have been. Hollywood, um, <laughs> you know, classic, yeah. classic Hollywood. Oh, yeah. True that. Nicolo, what is your take on this? I'm uh... dying to hear this. I'm super conflicted. This was my second time watching Wind Talkers. Um, and I have to say, I still really enjoy this film. I kind of loved it the first time around. And I kind of wasn't expecting it because of kind of everything you said, Daryl. I went into it kind of knowing some of these things, you know, like oh, people really hate this film. It's disrespectful to the Navajo people. It's just completely like it's focused on on, on, on the more boring, trite story that we've seen countless times in Hollywood war pictures. And yet... And yet, I'm watching this, and I'm just in it. Like, from beginning to end, it's going to be quite a conversation <laughs> to kind of uncover why I really gel with this film. But to me, it kind of works, and it works because of John Woo. 
he had already made a couple war films before this. He's made like he- Heroes Shed No Tears, which is a brutal, brutal film he made in Hong Kong before A Better Tomorrow. If you can track it down, definitely watch that. Um, and it made Bullet in the Head, which is a very, you know, very tragic Vietnam War drama. And, and so to see him kind of use his, his style and um, heightened sense of reality and uh, a stylish violence in a war setting, it's so interesting because it kind of plays with what he did with crime movies. He's simultaneously glorifying the violence and the and the cool factor of just people shooting guns and blood spurting everywhere and, ah, look, someone's missing a leg and just, isn't it cool, the slow motion? But he also uses that to showcase some of the horrors, the intensity, the brutal nature of these encounters. Um, I do have problems with the plot armor. It's ridiculous. I absolutely hate that in the opening, like you said, like Nicolas Cage gets a grenade like right next to him. And all he has is like missing a little bit of his left ear, you know, everything else, a little yeah. small, a small sexy scar on his left side of the face. Everything else is fine. Um, and I'm not really a fan of those things, but the way the relationship, especially I watched the extended version both times, so I honestly don't know how it plays out in the theatrical cut, but the way the story develops between him and um, and uh, the the Navajo uh, uh, Yatsi, Ben, ben Yatsi, um, and the contrast between Christian Slater and Whitehorse, like, I found it to be oddly compelling, even though We've seen it many times before in other movies in similar ways, you know, this type of, mm-hmm. uh, they're at odds in the beginning and uh, after a while they end up being good friends and, you know, I was supposed to kill you, but in the end I'm actually going to sacrifice my life. It's a story of empathy, it's a story of forgiveness, even though it kind of does lose the importance of the whole code talking. There's not enough code talking in my code talking movie, damn it. But yeah. yes, I, I enjoy it, I really do enjoy it. It's it's um it's a surprise for me. Oh, uh, by the way, might as well before I kind of just proceed to my sort of opening take, Randy sent in a voice memo. Oh yeah. Might as well just play it here. I'll play it through my phone, but I'll just in the episode I'll just splice it in so it's going to be sounding better. But I'll just hi Jacob, hi Nicolo, and hi Daryl. Welcome. It's nice to have you. I'm sorry that I couldn't be there to join in the chat, but I look forward to hearing all of your thoughts on. It sounds like he's in church, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Either on, in a church or in a bathroom. Sounds so like a ghost. Just, so, yeah. <laughs> From the year after. Uh, John Woo's Wind Talkers. I did have a chance to watch it this week. And I will share just a couple of my impressions on it uh, right here. So, uh, first off, really, it's, it's an okay war film, in my view. It's an okay Woo film. But it is not a great war film. It is not a great... Wu film, it to me is a little bit forgettable at, at the end of the day. Certainly Wu can handle the, uh, you know, the excitement of the action scenes and these war sequences are certainly good. Um, but Wu to me, he really soars when there's a romanticized and hyperbolic and sensationalized element to uh, his craft. And he's not really able to capture that here. So for example, like the opening uh, war sequence. We don't really get any slow-mo. We don't really get any use of music. Uh, I, I find that 
just this choice of material, this choice of script. Uh, Wu is positioning himself so that he's moving away from uh, the melodrama that he can be successful with. And he's got very serious uh, drama and, uh, you know, themes like the horror of war themes and, and how how those uh, elements play out in terms of PTSD and uh, male relationships. There's a lot that is is baked within this. So usually when I watch a Wu film, I'm able to enjoy the the action set pieces with a big smile on my face uh, just because they, they feel like, you know, musicals almost. And that joy and that uh, largeness uh, in an exciting cinematic sense isn't quite the same here. So it doesn't quite work because uh, to me, it's much harder to latch on to this uh, emotional core. And if there is something to latch on to here, it's probably Adam Beach. He gives what I think is a fantastic performance. I think he's an underrated actor in general, and he really does uh, give a good performance here. But the whole business to me of the Navajo language code and and trying to break it, it it doesn't really resonate with with me because every time we see this code being used in the film, it's simply to order coordinates and it's in the heat of the battle and uh, the coordinates are delivered and then air support uh, arrives fairly quickly. And I just, I don't really think the film works historically well either. I don't think it communicates the value of this code except for explaining what it was. I don't really see its significance in the heat of the battle. I don't really understand how the Battle of Saipan was won because of this code. Uh, so I, I think there's some shortcomings just in, in there as well. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. I hope you guys have a great conversation. Uh, I know you will, and I look forward to listening to it. And uh, Daryl, enjoy your time with these guys. And uh, we'll talk to all of you soon. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Ghost. Rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, he he did sound like he's uh, <laughs> coming through a Ouija board. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, you know, I've seen this. Like, weirdly enough, I've, I don't think I've ever liked this film, and I've seen this. I think mm. at this point five times. Don't so, believe. So how did know, that happen? I don't know. I've, I've been scratching my head for for a long for the longest time. Why? Because I've known this film so many so intimately now <laughs> it's just like I'm, just, I'm watching this now and i think this was maybe the first or the second time i've actually seen the director's cut on this and um uh i will say that i think i'm finally getting it as in okay oh. i think i'm 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 on like i don't want to sound like a broken record with like the mission impossible 2 episode where, where i for historically i I, ne- I never enjoyed mission impossible 2 until i've watched it out of sequence uh, with Mission Impossible films, and I realized what it's doing to me. Uh, and in here, I think I think at least I I see why it doesn't work or where it doesn't work, and that kind of allows me to tune this out a little bit. Because you like if you see this, like I'm watching this. This is like 42. This is like Jackie Robinson in in a war setting. Like this is just white people <laughs> cure racism, right? <laughs> so so to speak. You know, or this is this would be a sort of like a racism movie as uh, joked about by Bill Bear on stage, where you know there's this black swimmer trying to make it onto the national team, and there's this white guy in the audience going like, "Get out of the pool!" <laughs> Just you know, mm. or you know, 
So it kind of feels like it at times it's just loaded with these cliches and then just I don't I, I think like James Horner's score doesn't really do much of a service to kind of just uh, undermine this cliche ness if that's even a word. Mm. I think it's almost just working against the film in that regard because it kind of just just underlines this sort of like we're not in a real real sort of world we're in a Oscar Beatty prestige world where where white actor John Wayne esque sort of standing has to cure the cure the disease of racism and win the war and and, and sacrifice himself as he's going like so he can like, once you get this I think okay I'm, I'm I'm I can I can tune certain things out and I can concentrate on things that actually just um, work for me and the things that do work for me are essentially this the the entirety of the war setting I would say I really enjoy what's happening in there i i feel like this may be one of the last films where a lot of money was spent on actual explosives <laughs> before cgi effectively took over and then when people realize it's much cheaper when we don't blow shit up <laughs> yeah. or, surprisingly or much safer um so i feel this is this is the sort of these elements are what work worked for me predominantly and then i really latched on to two other elements which i hope we'll get to in in just regular discussion just in a few seconds but then i feel like this is his idea of a revisionist western as well when you think about why because i'm wondering why john Woo would take a script like this like something lands in his lap like this it says wind talkers just do you want this john and then and John says, mm, I don't know, let me read this. And it just it's essentially cowboys and Indians. Again, only just in this sort of revisionist sort of setting where you, you have to kind of overcome the sort of the age old uh, uh sort of I, I don't even know. The, 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 you kind of have to overcome the sort of the archetype of of them being enemies or sworn enemies with a lot of dirt behind their fingernails or at least on behalf of, let's just call them cowboys, right? Um, and then once you start seeing this, like this, this scenes that are potentially schmaltzy, like uh, the Christian Slater just sitting down and playing the harmonica with uh, with Chief Whitehorse, who's playing... Glorious w- moment. Who's, who's playing, I'm so, I suppose, some kind of a folk equivalent of a clarinet. It probably it has it definitely probably has a name. I don't know the name <laughs> of this instrument, but it can it sounds beautiful. And then you just start seeing how these sort of two words are coming together in a sort of very poetic way. And then this is some this is the melodrama that I think Randy was talking about. That it's not there. I think it's there. Um, so I actually quite liked it this time, even though I think it's this film still like th- thirty five to forty minutes too long. Okay, I think there's there's some mm-hmm. trimming to be done in here. You could easily take out certain things, like I don't really need to hear occasionally from this woman who just writes letters about how she sleeps with a dog. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, you I got need a the dog. female love interest. You need it. That's the Hollywood studio, like Daryl was saying. Like, you need a woman in this film. I mean, on the Wikipedia page, by the way, it just says, like, the studio wanted to join John Wayne picture. And he was like, no, this is a film about friendship. What do you want? (laughs) I think he got some of his way, I think. uh, But I don't know. People didn't get it. So here's a question I kind of have. I think, Nicolo, you touched it on on this a little bit, or maybe just quite a bit already, but maybe it's a good, good, good starting point just in general. What does John Woo bring into a into a war movie setting? Just in general, is there is there an uh, allure? Is there capital sort of in there? 
um, in, in, in the film sort of as it is. So it, could this film have been made by anybody else? Would it, would it may have made a difference or is it, is it good that this film exists in the way that it does, even, even with the problems that it has? And then what does John Woo bring to the table in terms of elevating this, I call it a genre. At this point, we can definitely call World War II drama a genre, right? So how does he elevate or change it in your view? It's it, it's it's a really pertinent question to ask. And it's an interesting question because, like I said, it's, you know, it, it's the potential for John Woo to be on a much bigger scale i guess in terms of like the action and the uh, and the explosions and everything um and uh, i think as i said earlier, it's the second time watching it for me and i th- i think i did enjoy it a little bit more the second time around but part of that was kind of like if you kind of think about it it's like half the film is kind of just the americans getting shelled by the japanese um mm-hmm. it's it's like three or four different occasions where the americans like we've been shelled again how does this keep happening um and as uh the ghostly voice note said it's it, it's a lot of coordinates like oh well, hill 215 hill help 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 um explosion explosion and then i i was trying to watch it again and just be like and i think this was kind of one of my my viewpoints the first time i watched this film in that Certainly John Woo was not really serviced by this film. It does feel like anyone could have done this film. I think there's like one moment where I was like, what that stood out to me on both occasions. It's a very quick moment. I was like, oh, that's quite Woo-esque. I the guess, Mexican standoff? The, the Mexican standoffs. <laughs> there was like one stunt, and this is when um, uh, they... they I think just because, like, I think it's like Pike or something. He keeps saying to Yats, he's like, "Oh, to use his own words, like you look like a nip." So they use him as a disguise to go into enemy lines. They mm-hmm. can radio the Americans and say, "Stop showing us." Um, and that's when they fight, and like Cage's character does like a dive into that giant trench. And I was like, yes. "Oh, that's that's a woo dive." Mm-hmm. And I was it like, "It looks that... like it's from Broken Arrow almost." <laughs> I, 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 I think they might have like use some broken arrow stuff again in this mm-hmm. uh, but it's kind of like for better or worse and this is kind of one of the issues i had like the war scenes are visually really interesting they're very captivating in the way that they're shot the action draws you in there's a lot going on it's not overwhelming um and it looks good uh mm-hmm. any 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 time there was like like an all-out battle on one of the, the various sort of hilly areas. I was like, "Oh, this is this, this is great! I'm having, I'm really enjoying this." Then I sort of remember, like, obviously it's a World War Two f- film, and I'm not saying don't include the war in it, but also you kind of think to yourself, "This isn't explicitly what this film is about." And then it's kind of explosion, explosion, explosion. Um, someone gets an arm cut off, and then Nicholas Cage going read the coordinates and then someone like Ben Yatsi going like uh, um, and Ben as a character he's, he's very you can kind of warm to him um, and I, I don't think it's it's so much John Woo's fault as maybe with the writing that 
in as much as he isn't service as a director, like at the same way, none of the characters really feel that well fleshed out or serviceable. You've got um, Ben Yatta who like, oh, he, well, we've got to get at least one Navajo in this, I guess. Like Cage is the, the PTSD-ridden uh, soldier who's just trying to do his job. You've got Mark Ruffalo's character who's the nice one and you've got Pike who's the racist one. And then you've got two other soldiers who are also there and then christian slater's like want, want to bro down like toot some harmonica flute and then i was like okay you've all got like a thing but like i i and you I, I can sort of see what you bring to differentiate your characters a little bit but it it's like the characters become one dimensional and then again I, it, this is a very roundabout way of saying like you know, obviously, you watch a film like this and you sort of read the behind-the-scenes stuff, what's available, and you can understand why John Woo was, like, flipping off Hollywood going, like, right, screw all of you, I'm out, mm-hmm. I don't want any of this. And it's just the classic men in suits going, welcome to Hollywood, Woo, this is how it works now. Um, you do what we say. And I just kind of think, like, if you're going to... And again, this isn't me saying that I think John Woo should only make... Big air quotes, a John Woo type of film, but at the same time, you've got to let him do his thing. And obviously, again, mm-hmm. it comes out in the war scenes, which are really interesting. But with a film like this, that shouldn't be the most interesting thing. Like, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, and that's kind of where, like, my, I'm like, oh, it's, it's kind of good. I kind of enjoyed it a bit more. I didn't hate it, but mm-hmm. there's going back to circle back to what I said at the start. There's just the opportunity to tell a much more interesting story was there and it just kind of it's just like as as you were saying earlier it's it's a classic case of white men solving racism um you know one of my personal favorite genres but um you know what you know it 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 is what it is it's Who not the best like film. It? <laughs> green book won the oscar for a reason man you know the uh, help the help you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, like with this film, it's it is definitely something that Hollywood had done before. You definitely feel that everyone wanted to cash in on Saving Private Ryan's success. Saving mm-hmm. Private Ryan changed the world genre as a whole. Oh, you can make it super gory. You can show the horrors of war with more detail. Use handheld cameras. Ha- heighten the intensity and all of that stuff. And you definitely feel that watching this film. I forgot that a lot of the action in here is long takes, first of all, which kind of surprised me. There's not a lot of quick cutting as it is, as there is in the other previous American John Woo films. And there's a lot of handheld work where it really does immerse you into the action. Um, in a way, it's much cleaner than something like Saving Private Ryan. It's not as dirty. It's not as bloody. It's not as, as gruesome, I'd even say. We're still managing to sprinkle some gore in here. But I think definitely something that appealed, probably appealed to John Woo, at least reading the script, that made him go, ha, huh, I could do this, is the heroic bloodshed element, which is actually a term we've never used in the previous episodes, and I'm ashamed mm-hmm. of myself for that. Damn it. How <laughs> um, dare you? How very uh, dare you? <laughs> that's a proof I'm not a John Woo fan, you know. Um, I'm just a poser. <laughs> but 
the Roik bloodshed, you know, like, uh, you know, brothers in arms kind of battling thousands and thousands of endless faceless enemies just to bond together, to, to help each other out in the times of need. It's something that is always gravitated towards. And to have it in a, in a war setting, I can see it very, being very appealing. And definitely, like you said, Daryl, the, the scope of it all is impressive. Like there's some masterful wide shots in here where you have like dozens, if not hundreds of people running and there's explosions everywhere. And I'm just how people didn't get injured on this set is beyond me. They're actually like blowing up on the explosions. The wire work is insane just everything i'm just in awe of the action um but yeah I, th- I think at the end of the day it's kind of like the same reason why i really love the other films that john Woo has made in the us and also in hong kong it's just the melodrama appeals to me the way he handles it it's very cheesy like i'm watching uh christian slater playing by the water the, the moon reflecting i was like yeah that's that's good. That's good stuff. <laughs> in another movie, another filmmaker probably would have made it very corny. I'm thinking, you know, we uh, the same year there was uh, We Were Soldiers that came out. I forgot oh, who directed that. Which uh, is Randall a good Wallace. F- there we go. Randall Wallace? Yeah, probably. It, it's a good film. I, I like We Were Soldiers, but there's so much more. Like it is even more so of a cliche written. You know, everyone's a stereotype. Uh, it it's all the beats. And all the various plot points that you expect in a war film like that, that wants to be Saving Private Ryan, wants to be Black Hawk Down. But but I, I do think, even though it's definitely, it's definitely, you know, I can feel that the voice of Wu is being snuffed out a little bit in here compared to the other films. Um, you can feel the passion kind of living him a little bit. Something that was present in Face of. Face of is bombastic, it's exciting. It's to me, it's almost a perfect action film. And you get to something like this, and it feels more studio mandated. Some of the interactions, some of the elements in there. But still, I think his voice is strong enough, or maybe I'm just too big a fan and I'm biased as hell. <laughs> but I think I still see him shining through in bits and pieces, and that's where I really connect with this film. I think you're onto something as well in terms of um like this well this i think that definitely uh, there's a lot of studio mandate as you both kind of mentioned that you know this like we've talked about his hollywood sort of travels already and then it kind of is one of those where he has constantly had to butt heads with studio moguls about this is not how we do stuff here like, but you hired me like you brought me from hong kong to do this like this is how i do stuff. no no like this is how you do it here so what what we want you to do is do a hollywood imitation of what you do but just you know so we want like they're they're cherry picking pretty much what they like what they think is John Woo's style I think and they allow him to kind of just exist in this sort of confined space. But I'd say there is yeah there is there is an allure to like there's there, there's a few scenes where they like you have these sort of helicopter shots of whole battlefields kind of battlefields with stuff ha- happening at the same time and then you can see that this is where I think this is where he's kind of cl- classing things up and I I'm kind of happy that someone one of you i think mentioned saving pride of lion and I, I'm, I'm just wondering this myself was this film conceived by the way as like a gimmick on a saving private ryan it's just what if it's saving private saving private ryan but instead tom hanks has to at some point kill the guy and just okay and then just build the narrative from there. It's like, oh, what if what if we make him a Navajo cult talker? Because, some, because someone read a book about the, the wind talkers or whatever. And just, this would be it was like a footnote, probably. Yeah, this would be interesting. 
and let's make it about the John Wayne type character. And it's all fine. So like one, I think this is where I have to just do the legwork and kind of tune this stuff out because usually it drives me up the wall. Like when I watch something like Hotel Rwanda and, and you just feel <laughs> like you're watching a, again, like a South Park sort of parody of a, of a prestige film um, <laughs> where, yeah. you know, the sort of the like the racism on display is just you know you look like a jap and just without your shirt on like what's the thing that separates you from a jap is that uniform and it's just okay <laughs> fine so progressive and yeah you know, and then he he goes like oh my grandfather you know we they used to hunt the comanches or something like this and it's just like what are you now maybe 50 years from now us and the nips are gonna be sitting there drinking sake <laughs> just okay well that's just strange out of nowhere conversation but i feel like this kind of happens in sort of in this small spaces between what makes what makes this a john woo film after all i think this his voice is strong enough i think that as you said that in moments where it mattered to this being a world war ii film i think this is where it kind of just uh shines and the question is now in a because when when you remember say saving private ryan i think nicolo i think you've just put the nail on the, hit the nail on the head and said well the allure was the realism like some people would like it show saving private ryan to veterans who su- survived the operation overlord and they would just get out the room and say like i can't handle this because i smell diesel like in like it's just it it like it brings back memories it's not good right mm-hmm. um so I, yeah, so here's a question: like, Does does he actually function in the same way here? Like, is is John Woo bringing in the realism of the horrors of war, or does he do something else? What does he do in here? I mean, he doesn't. He definitely doesn't shy away from the horrors of war, which is as weird as this say. It, it, it's welcome that it's not just people with, I guess, the uh, the the enders rage of like you can take my ears and my legs and my arms and my eyebrows but i just i i must it is imperative that i kill more uh more japs i just have to do it i'll get my sort of kind of girlfriend to lie about the hearing test for no gain to herself so i can get back on the battlefield um and just get stabbing and shooting and um yelling and not be as explicitly racist as this other guy uh but it's yep. i think but it's kind of quite quite few and few and far between like it feels like john we were said oh was told to be like oh just got like a shot of bart ruffalo's face looking sad um <laughs> every every now and then and like i i i think this is where it comes into what i was saying again like i just wish the story had stuck with um uh, ben and 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 White Horse a little bit more because I think there's like the first time when he's got the the radio backpack on and his helmet comes off and he sees the picture of his sort of family and the helmet and he's kind of shaking going oh, oh. and then um, and Cage is like helmet stays on uh, and then like just more sort of like like the realization of the I guess like the horrors of war because. At the start, they're getting on the bus. Everyone's like high fiving and like they're just like fist bumping each other. It's going like, let's let's go this show these silly white men uh, what we can do. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh yeah, like cool. Like if you, you you know different perspective into this, you go into it with some, for lack of a better term, some welcome positivity and it yeah. You know, again, it's just like 
oh, this this you get distracted by more explosions and there's like three or four different like out and out big scope battles and again like I said the, the battles are like great and they're fun to watch but it, it feels like they had to hit a quota of like this needs to be like 55% war hmm. 35% Nicholas Cage drunk in a graveyard going oh damn you Joe Enders and then being haunted by a ghost <laughs> um, and then 10% is like oh remember there's there's a guy who isn't white in this film as well remember that we put him on the poster that'd be enough for you it's 2002 what an enlightened time um, but I just it, it Again, it's just like I just none of the characters really being serviced by the film because everyone just kind of keeps progressing. And I think, as we've touched upon, every character is kind of just a bit stereotypical. And you know, they have they have that conversation of like, "Oh, what are you going to do after the war?" And there's no not one person you can really gravitate towards. And then it's kind of the thing like again, we say like. I didn't hate this film. You kind of, it feels like you kind of float through the film and then like, it's like, oh, I'm not really sure who to root for on our, on the American side here. Oh, explosions. Oh, some more character work. Explosions. Uh, more, more character work. Again, some more explosions. Uh, suddenly Ben Yatsi has become an absolute Mortal Kombat killing machine. <laughs> he had end. it in him. He had it in the whole time. He had it in the whole time. He became. I think my my previous note was he became a, uh, the literal embodiment of like a fifteen year old playing Modern Warfare two, just absolutely <laughs> just obliterating people, getting a kill count. He got like a, a incredible kill streak. Um, then I was like, I mean, I mean, I, I guess war brings out the the, the worst, and also the, the absolute John Wick in people. Well, that's what they say. The word br- brings out the worst and the best in people, and the best is John Wick. <laughs> I mean, that's that's war, baby. That's, that's war. Just, that's what it although it has nothing on, shirt, on, on. What do I call him, Chief Whitehorse? The Whitehorse character with his knife <laughs> oh, throw. Geez. Oh my goodness! The knife throw. What a move! What what a legend this guy is. <laughs> he, he pulled that knife throw out from the depths of hell and I was like white horse I thought you were like a sniveling coward here you are saving Pike yeah and then, the Pike thinks he's gonna be uh oh I'm gonna get it this time I, I don't know every time I, I think about the, I, I, I think about him and my no, in my notes he's always I, I gave him a name Cletus Cletus because <laughs> he's just, just so cliche racist anyway so mm. <laughs> and it's just like oh no I'm going to get it because Whitehorse is going to take revenge on me. He's just now he's going to kill the guy who's just behind him that nobody could see. Just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Screen movie thing. Um, honestly, like listening to both of you talking, kind of, I just quickly went through John Woo's career up, to, up until this point. One of the major problems is that there's way too many characters. I completely agree about that. Like this needed to be focused on the Navajo Code Talkers Mm-hmm. Nicholas Cage a little bit, and let's put in as well, you know, Christian Slater as a as a juxtaposition to Cage. Nicholas Cage you can afford, yes. <laughs> Cage you can afford precisely. <laughs> bless Nicholas, uh, bless uh, Christian Slater. We love him. But but yes, like I was rewatching this, I was like, you know what? I I like the actors that they got, like Mark Ruffalo, Stormare, all the other ones, Martin Anderson. It's like it's fine, 
but I don't care about them. Like, this is not your movie. We don't need you to talk about your families, to talk about your hopes for the future. We already have this character. We have the main characters of the story doing the same things, pretty much. So it becomes very redundant while watching this. Like, yeah. And that's something that John Woo has never really done up until this point. He's always been very focused with, like, three or four characters, and you're just focused on them. It's their relationship with one another, and that's it. You don't need this massive, like, ensemble cast of, of side characters to to put, put focus on, and it, it takes away from the core of the film, absolutely. That's kind of, like, the only thing I really don't like about it. And then again, like, those sequences are fine, are trite and boring. I feel bad for Wu. Like, I was reading up on some interviews about his time in Hollywood, and they kept saying, like, I kept turning movies down because the scripts were horrible. Like, I, I didn't want to take this, this mm-hmm. poor films because they just wanted me to do an action movie. And then I was like, and this yeah. is the one he took, right? <laughs> think about that. Like, think about that. And even here, like, the screenwriters, John Rice and Joe Batir, the only other films they've done is Blown Away, which oh, probably oh. you've seen, Jakub. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Uh, is, is it good? Like, you, not every day you get to see Tommy Lee Jones just sing along to you two while making a bomb. <laughs> well, that saying. sounds like a classic. <laughs> Everyone's just like pouring petrol into us, into us and just still haven't found. It's just great. <laughs> but yeah, like they've written that. They've written the um, Bonnie and Clyde remake. Like it's not necessarily what I would call Queen refined. And what? No, there was a, a TV remake <laughs> oh, right. okay. with Emil Hirsch. Um, so I, I can see him being like very much like a shit, like another terrible script here. Oh, I might as well. I can see some elements that I can connect with. And he tries to do his best, but yeah. Let's see here. I mean, I would say yes. Up to that point, I would say because again, like this is me being a broken record. John Woo's making westerns in in his <laughs> own setting, like all throughout his career. He's just a western guy. He just puts them in different places. So it will be three, four characters, and they'll be all explicitly defined by the very sort of identifiable features. This is a bad guy because he smokes a cigar and wears black. This is a this is a good guy because he doesn't smoke it, and then and you know and he drinks orange juice or something like this. So it's it's, so it's easily identifiable. And there's a damsel in distress, Q Yancy Butler, right? And this villain is just a henchman who takes people's ears off, right? And says Randall. So uh, it's easy to 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 figure out where people are. So I would say, yeah. He still operates with cliches, easily identifiable archetypes, and he does it for a reason because the action is always so propulsive and so kinetic, and everything just snaps so quickly that it's if like this is something that I've I've said about some someone like James Cameron that he just makes characters out of very sort of one-dimensional cliches that you don't even pay attention to because you're you want to be invested in the action, so you don't really want to slow down and and examine their humanity for for longer than half a second so you have to be able to kind of just get and get on board get with the program as quick as possible uh so something like face off kind of gets gets away with a lot of these things because there's so much going on at, at each given time so you just have to slow down for half a second and you're in a domestic situation where you just deliver get get a delivery of like two and a half minutes of cliches and then you're back in action right so it also works in a World War II setting for me because like, I watch these scenes that you guys c- criticize and I'm just thinking, like, these are genre tropes for me. Like when you say, like, when the guy's walking and talking about what, what they're going to do after the war's over, that's just a genre trope. Like, that happens in every war film, right? <laughs> or 
you know, they, they're not too in-depth. Sure, because there's 12 of them. And then if you make a war film about three people, you'd be asking, like, where's the rest of the battalion, right? What are they, all, only three of them in there? What's going on? Like, there's there, there have to be people. Otherwise, it doesn't look like a war film. So even in Platoon has, like, nine people in there. You kind of have to just operate in cliches in there, right? Because there's just so many people in there. Or something like Casualties of War. There's going to be, like, seven people you have to pay attention to because there's seven people you're stuck with in this forest, right? Or jungle, right? So I feel like this is just part of the context is just this is something i have to just get used to because that's just 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 what it is it's a hollywood world war ii film and this is what's gonna happen in here so in a way i'm just like okay fine this is just part of the uh the folklore of of a world war ii movie and i'm just thinking myself like i'm listening to you guys speak i'm just thinking to myself does saving private ryan a film that gave Mm -hmm. i give consistently five stars every time i watch it and three hours just go like this um it's great it's all doesn't I think that also operates with cliches. Like, what can you tell me about the Vin Diesel character in there? Not much, right? Or Giovanni Ribisi or something like this. They're all... Probably dies. <laughs> I mean, they all <laughs> kind of die quite quickly, right? <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like, I mean, they do have this moment where, I mean, they're so unidimensional that it almost kind of takes you by surprise when they just sit down and then Tom Hanks says like, oh, I'm a, t- oh, I'm a teacher or something like this. Or Matt Damon just talks about how he caught his brother banging a, 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 his girlfriend in the barn or something like this, right? So it makes it, it makes for an interesting moment there, but it's an asser- I mean, it serves as a moment of detachment from the re- the gritty realism of what they're experiencing, and then to bring it back around to uh, what John Woo's doing, I have a feeling that maybe the difference is that John Woo's never been dealing in realism, has he been? And that's the difference. Like he's not necessarily making a realistic sort of World War II film, does he? Or am I seeing things? Uh, yeah, it's yeah. I, I think this is what I, I kind of like um and are on the film so much because I there's obvious problems to have with it. There's sort of obvious tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think it comes back to that. And uh, I think for fear that we're all sounding like broken records here, that like was John Woo's service by doing this film. So like, I don't think he was, um, but it, it's, it, it, it just feels to me like just, I don't know, like a, a film anyone could have made. You could have said this was uh, Johnny director who made this film as like, oh yeah I love Johnny director's work what 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 an absolute filmography that this this person has and uh, uh, you, you know you you just understand why John Woo was so jaded there's it, it could have been it just could have been a lot better like like it it really could um, does it come through you think that he's jaded in here. It, it feels like he's 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 done the film he was told to make. Mm-hmm. Like I, I suppose if this makes sense, there'd be like a John Woo film or um, John Woo being told to make a John Woo film, and it kind of feels like the latter. Like and hopefully that's that doesn't sound sort of like too hmm. cryptic. Um, but I, I suppose like for someone from like my perspective. Like the previous John Woo film I've watched before, this is Face Off. So I'm thinking like that was batshit insane. I loved every moment <laughs> of it. Now Nicholas Cage and John Woo are in like like the war. Obviously, I'm not expecting like um, 
some absolutely in, insane face-off scenario, World War Two, where Nicolas Cage and like a like, like a Japanese soldier have to swap faces. <laughs> um, <laughs> some make him... some make all that insensitive. <laughs> um, Someone needs to write the script. I know, like face face off Japan. I don't know. Terrible title. Um, but I, I sort of go into that thinking like, oh, like, well, you know, I'm, 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 I guess I'm expecting certain things from the action scenes. Like, I think the first time I went in, and this is kind of generally speaking for all the films, except the ones I'd seen before with Nicolas Cage, I tried to go into them with as little knowledge as possible. So everything's mm-hmm. a very fresh first time watch where it would be applicable. Um, and I was kind of, I don't know, like it, it, it may sound like ridiculous out loud, but like that sort of almost Max Payne video game, sort of bullet time, slow-mo, jump to the side kind of shooting thing, just that sort of flair and excitement and engagement that you get in. And I, I'm not saying that Nicolas Cage should be, you know, just like roundhouse kicking people in the middle of like a Japanese hill and that there's going to be suddenly like doves floating everywhere as he's like running out of the trenches mm. with an LMG. Um, now that's a little dove, by the way, again. True. No birds. No birds. Well, I'd say the, the, there is a very quick shot of a seagull. It um, is true. He was staring there at the seagull. seagull. Yeah. <laughs> there is, there is a, the seagull, which I, so I really enjoyed the same time around. Face off, right? Because there is a few seagulls in face off. They get the some beach, birds yeah. in the church at the end, but it oh, feels yeah, yeah. like John was like, guys like i'll i'll make you film but can i just like can i get like some white birds or something it's like can't do doves can we settle on gulls i was like (laughs) and then he's just like well a little bit better than pigeons that they gave me on hard target so (laughs) slightly we'll take what we can get yeah but you know, it's just you know, it's an interesting. By the way, it's just an interesting segue while, while we're on Nicolas Cage. Do you guys think that he's? What do you guys think in about him in the sort of role that he got? As in, like, as I'm not sure if I can call him a leading man in here. What's what's his what's his deal in here? What mm. I mean, I suppose Daryl, you 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 gonna be like, hold my beer, like this is this is it now. <laughs> this is the Cage talk, right? Yes. So what's 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 his what what's his malfunction in here? What what does he? Is is he appropriate for the role? Is he what is he trying to achieve in in the way he, he's doing this? What is yeah? What, what's what's happening? It's kind of interesting because I was um, and, and not to sound like I'm, I'm trying to like self-flagellate here. I listened back to my own sort of episode on this. I think like, oh, what was my sort of viewpoint back then? Mm-hmm. Has it changed compared to now? And I think um, me and past me self high five. Um, I guess still have a kind of agreement there that. You know, obviously for me, and as I call him on, on, on my podcast, Nicholas Cage is the golden hog of Hollywood and he uh he's he cannot make bad movies, it's not in his genetic makeup. But I think again, and um you know, maybe this is kind of me projecting my own, I don't know, worldviews too much into this film and putting too much stock in the could'ves and the would'ves and the should'ves. Like I said on that episode, and I would sort of you know, sort of double down and plant the flag in that, that even though I've obviously no issue with him being in the movie. And I think what he did as with the rest of the cast is good. 
it's serviceable. Um, each character, as we've said, was kind of a stereotypey, archetypey, this, that, and the other. Do I think he should have been the lead in this, or that the character of Joe Enders, more than anything, should have been the focal point of this? To go back what I've said numerous times, no, he shouldn't really have been. Like what he did was like fine, and like it wasn't like no one was necessarily like a bad actor in this, and um, it was all good and well and. You know, to, to sort of quote the title, there wasn't really any out of context cage ragey moments. Any little cage creams that they have were, as we have to remind people on my podcast, were warranted if you watch them in context. He shouted fuck once. That was good. I enjoyed that. <laughs> um, it's, you came close, I, though, in the sort of when he was drinking in the graveyard. By the way, how quickly are they digging these graves? Like, it's it's like it's a nine to five war. Where they're like, we're done here for now. We need to dig them dra- graves. Like, can you so good work to do. Built, built differently in those uh, <laughs> in, in the nineteen forties. Just got shit done, and it's, it's lazy TikTok. And, <laughs> and I'm, I, and I sound ancient right now. Like, you know who you are. <laughs> um, it, those were real men. You know, they'll, they'll look back on this generation in fifty years and go, "We just, we just danced. That's what we did." Like, and I'm not pro-war, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, like, I could really go for World War Three. That would be amazing right now. Oh, we'll just refocus massively. It's just like, what do we do now? What? Because I know to, that I... need to point the, 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 the stick at what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, what, me? I'm, I'm, I'm six foot four and I regularly get told that I look like Stephen Merchant. Why am I in the trenches? I have no business being there. It's like, I'm like, sticking out. <laughs> at, at six foot five, I don't fit in the trench. Sorry. So I'd, you'd be like like, like a, a clown in a clown car. He's like hunched down, like in the trenches. Yep. I've joked in real life before that if I get on, on the hilarious day that I end up getting drafted when the war with Russia comes, um, I will be my literal role on an application to the to the army will be human sandbag. So like, <laughs> lay me down. You can push me in some gaps. That's going to be absolutely fine. You'll be um, uh, penetrating foxholes because you're nice and slim, so you can just. <laughs> I'm a, I'm, a regu- I'm a regular Slenderman, is is what I am. Um, but but with Cage, I think what people, I guess, don't sort of always appreciate about him is that he he finds interesting things in roles in which he can push himself as an actor, and for all the stick that he he gets and all the perception that he just takes any role, like he will find things in roles that he thinks he can bring something to. Has he got the emotional um, sort of weight to? offer something honest to the role. And as you said at the start, like he, according to a thing read on IMDb, learnt the Navajo language, and then someone said that he'd misunderstood the role, which begs the question, who begs the question, like, who explained the role to him? Uh, because that's a that's a, a very big error to make. It's like, the, the, script, the script is in English, Navajo. Um, well, which is... You know, if 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 un, 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 what's this? Un, Jesus, unbearable weight of massive talent is is anything to go by in terms of the biographical bits of of Nicolas Cage's character. I could totally see that he read the script and he assumed that he's taking the Ben role, and he just <laughs> didn't listen to anyone. What do you mean, lad? 
<laughs> well, I mean, he, he gets he gets a few lines of Japanese in there, and if you know, like, he yeah, he does. You, you know, you know for a fact that Cage knew that Japanese, and that wasn't in the script, and he just said it was like, well, you know, we filmed it now. Um, you can see that when Ben says, like, when he was like, or say Oriada, what does what does it? And you can see Ben's like, what? That means, oh. He's he's off script now, and then you can see John. We can imagine John will be behind the camera. Just keep rolling. Just keep ro- just roll. Just roll with this. Just like, like do, this. do what he says. <laughs> so I'm really into this. This this Cage guy. He's a character. I've got to keep our eye on him. <laughs> but 2002 was like an interesting year for Cage as well because he had had Wind Talkers, and this was the same year that Adaptation came out. So uh, you feel like this. There may have been some like traffic, some adaptation traffic as well, which I say to this day the most robbed film in history, and I will fight anyone that disagrees. DM me your coordinates; I'll meet you there. <laughs> Just DM in them in minutes. Navajo was it, while you're at it. I, I dare you if, if <laughs> you've got the, the stones. <laughs> I'll break that code. I'll do. I'll do what the Japanese couldn't in World War Two. I'll break the code to fight you. I mean, it's quite one interesting thing if you actually if you trans pose the production of the film say if you think this film was made in 2000 right mm-hmm. so that would have been just just about after he did bringing out the dead or uh maybe shadow of the vampire i don't know <laughs> so, so i don't i don't know because i would assume that he would have done the, the adaptation after after him? probably yeah more than likely yeah. um so this would have been filmed about yeah Probably about two thousand. So he'd done uh, Gone in sixty seconds, The Family Man at that time mm-hmm. as well. I mean, if it had come out in two thousand and one, then he would have had back to back war movies with Captain Karani's yeah. Mandolin as yeah. well. Also, would have so, been massive set of balls on the uh, producers, which is like the country's reeling from this massive terrorist attack. And the th- here's a uh, two and a half hours of fetishizing violence. How about that? <laughs> We could we could have called it Cage's War Year. So the three big American events: Mandolin, nine eleven, Wind Talkers. That's they're all connected. We, it's all connected, man. <laughs> it's knowing. I, I, I'm not I'm not trying to imply that Cage was behind nine eleven before anyone misinterprets or before this gets clipped out of context. And then uh, just it was, people remember that he was also in World Trade Center. It's all connected, man. <laughs> it's the numbers. You saw the numbers while studying, it's, you know. It's just, you know uh, so if not Cage, um, by the way, who would be... Uh, no, I mean, I, 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 ideally, it would be about Ben Yatsi. And then you just... As as the film kind of starts with Ben Yatsi just boarding a bus, and he's like, oh, I suppose we're going to be uh, following him, right? He, no, no. You'd he, think so. <laughs> no, no. Cut yeah. to Oliver Stone's platoon for a second. <laughs> Which, weirdly enough, I don't... What do you guys think about this sort of opening action sequence, by the way? Because I, I felt there was a little bit... I mean, I, this is where I kind of had my little sort of epiphany, but then I just want to kind of hear your take on this. Because it feels... Does it feel a bit staged to you guys? The opening mm. sort of... Not not the big sort of... Uh, when the first sequence on Saipan, where they arrive and there are these sort of Japanese stre- trenches everywhere and they're just loading these... Um, these I don't know, these essentially naval guns and just shooting at the Americans with matte paintings in the background just feels like a 50s film and then you know when they load the coordinates and you see archival footage of real guns being shot from real (laughs) ships which by the way it's like that's a cheap old move (laughs) 
110 that, million dollars make an appearance <laughs> i mean i suppose it probably cost a lot of money to kind of just borrow a ship and fire around right <laughs> but yeah this the first sequence feels a bit different to me does it feel different to you too as well or what it's, do you guys think about it i was actually thinking about that revisiting the movie it almost feels like a re- I, I don't know anything about like behind the scenes but it almost feels like a reshoot that they did in a studio doesn't it it feels like you said it feels very staged it feels a little bit cheaper than anything else than any of the other actions it's probably just because there's like mist around or something like that it's this mm-hmm. in media stress it's basically the climax of another movie that's happening there it's like everyone's dying the entire team is like no don't go there john it's like oh we have to go forward yeah. and they all die gruesomely oh everyone's saying their last words to him damning him <laughs> all that good stuff um it was the true ending to Captain Corelli's mandolin. Was how this, <laughs> how this started. <laughs> it's like the, the mandolin sucks, and then it just just a whole island war started. True. Enough. It was Penelope Cruz. No, I'm just I'm, I'm just wondering. There's um, I'm wondering whether this this scene is a result of someone, like a producer. I don't know who produced it. Uh, who's who, who's behind it? Please tell me it's Weinstein. No, it's uh, MGM. Oh geez, Louise. So I'm. Um, I don't know who would be behind this, and then telling them like, you know, I saw this film you did a few years ago, hard, hard boiled. That's the one. I saw that one. <laughs> Can we do this this sequence with the hospital, but everyone's gonna be dressed in the U.S. Marine uniforms, and we're gonna choreograph the shit out of us. And and then John was like, I don't think this is the setting, but I guess we can. And I feel like there's like there's not much heart in it in that way, but it feels like. This is someone's asking him to go go John Woo and on in in this scene and just make sure that this is. So I feel like there's the these sort of the long sort of handheld takes are kind of like a are supposed to be connecting to some kind of legacy that he has. I'm not sure if I'm if you agree on this. Mm, yeah, I, 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 it it feels tonally very different right at the start mm. of the film. It, it does. I guess now I think, but. It, it, kind of feels like almost maybe like an afterthought if mm-hmm. it, it definitely feels like um and i think it kind of like sets you up in a bad way for kind of the movie as well because it's very intense it's very dark like this mm-hmm. is you know we get like ben and Whitehorse meeting on the bus and then suddenly like we're in this, as you said, dark, foggy, sort of swampy area. Cage's entire like squad are getting absolutely massacred, and then, and I think, as we've said, it kind of comes into the rest of the film, and this is kind of like the producers and the machine behind it. I've said like, right, so we've got you know Yancey and Whitehorse are on the bus, but we need action. We need it right now. We need to set up this white man's backstory and how integral he's going to be to. The plot, and mm-hmm. I think he, I think he like sets some stakes for like Nicholas Cage's character, and it's again I sort of look back at the film and the whole and like were his the stakes that the film needed to focus on? No, not really. Um, but it's like again, what, what I sort of say joking, it's like how can we make the undertold, underappreciated story of the underrepresented Navajo important, that's right, we'll focus on the plight of the white man. <laughs> um, and that's 
and that's like and it's and again again taking the voice from nothing nothing from John Woo like it was like oh oh god like this is this is sudden this is intense like and it's not shying away from the gore of it all I, I think like an arm or a leg gets chopped off as well and um it's very interesting in like the first five minutes of the film but it's I I sort of wonder like if it's Maybe had that. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. If that was like a later kind of flashback thing, if it had just introduced Yahtzee and Whitehorse first on the bus, and then it was then, I guess, in the first quarter, third, or whatever, it's that integration into sort of like the forces. And because the quieter moments with them, it's very engaging and it's very nice mm-hmm. and it's very pleasant. And but there was just like, like we, we, we. We've got to have our war. I can't get enough war. My belly's full. I'm, 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 I'm coughing up and vomiting and trying to hold it down. My, my throat muscles are tense, but you've got to cram more war in me. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm gagging for some war. Um, and I was, you know, like, cool. Um, but I was like, just please just give, just give me more Ben Yazi. And what, what's that? Like? I, I don't know, Adam Beach is like great. When I was watching it again, I was kind of like, and I was and I was kind of thinking in the light of, sort of James Franco being cast as is it like Fidel Castro or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> I would look. I was looking at Adam Beach and I was like, facially, you kind of remind me of like of like Dave Franco, and that kind of makes me feel like if this film got remade, they'd cast Dave Franco in your role. <laughs> I mean, like, kudos on them that they actually cast a a Native American. <laughs> At this. least native Canadian, isn't he Canadian? He is Canadian, but he has he's he's a First Nation. Oh, there you go. Uh, descendant, right? So he has he has the sort of the native blood flowing through him. So I suppose he's you know in, in two thousand two, like you would have you would have expected Dave Franco. I mean, if he would be, the, I mean, he was probably like five, but you know, but Thankfully. like someone of that, like Hayden Christensen, would be probably him, right? <laughs> in two thousand, mm. yeah. Uh, yeah, a little bit of good old whitewashing. Kind of miss it nowadays. We need to come back one way or another. That's we need more controversies. Wait for that James Franco film about Fidel Castro, right? But you know, if it comes out. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that opening action scene—it almost feels like those horror films. They feel the need to show the horror early on, otherwise audiences won't stay. It's kind of like the Evil Dead remake. <laughs> It's like there's blood and guts in the first two minutes because, like, you see, you're watching a horror film. This is kind of the mm. same. It's like, uh, it, it is like the Omaha beach scene. They kind of want to replicate it. See, it's a war film, blood, action, explosions. This is what you they, paid they're for. kind of just playing from the same playbook, right? Yeah, it's it's a bit cheap in that way, and it's it is almost a catch twenty two in a way where. Okay, you focus on the wind talkers and the whole like them going to boot camp and them learning the code and then them being sent to war. And it's like, yeah, but we're 40 minutes in, there's no action. People are bored. Like audiences from 2002 are bored. They don't want to watch mm-hmm. that. But then if you do what they did, you get this jumbled mess of a narrative in terms of mm-hmm. who's the actual focus of it. Um, yeah. Because they throw in this woman in their letters and they're just, and they're blatantly trying to get fired from her job in the army by helping him uh, at the sort of hearing test. And you can see that the, the guy's just uh, cranking this up, just me, and she's just like, I'm fine here. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm just thinking this. Is is part of the reason why this doesn't gel very well? Because it like he could 
I could watch this and say it doesn't gel for me, but now it kind of does because what I see this in the scene in the, in the beginning is that it foreshadows like again because John Wood deals with these sort of cliches and archetypes where it's westerns, right? Like you're, you're having face off, like well, there's a showdown here, there's a showdown there. So he has these sort of mirror image symmetrical moments where you have you have to establish the uh, the Nicholas Cage Nicholas Cage's demons in there, or well, this is. I have my orders. I've, you know, I, we we were, they they want us to keep this position and just loses the entire team, right? So and then, mm-hmm. well, I don't know. You have to kind of just, I think, I think, I think you kind of have to just get used to this that you're just in Hollywood because, fade to black and now they're safe. He's in the hospital. Who saved them? I don't know because <laughs> Japanese soldiers are everywhere. And um, I don't know. Like, I didn't read met too many books on the subject, but I seem to remember they they didn't have a habit of taking prisoners. So, uh, you, you know, just leaving wounded soldiers there too. No, no, they, they would be just no. They wouldn't be leaving wounded soldiers. They would just make sure just, just stick a bayonet in them. Just like Are you dead. Okay, now you're okay. Good. And then they'll just you know move on because the Japanese army was ruthless. Like this, like people were really actively afraid of them because they would they would be like I don't know. Uh, like we talked about this on this, so I'm not sure if this is gonna come out at this point. Like we we recorded the Starship Troopers episode of Death, Death by Adaptation about this sort of this sort of um, the hive mind where they were just like they would be just like jumping to their deaths for no apparent reason because people didn't understand they had the different sort of moral code that they were operating on. But uh, then this sort of it feels to me that this sort of beginning is explicitly for this reason. And but what what I feel like the audiences would be this 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 doesn't work in the same way that Omaha Beach does because Omaha Beach in Saving Private Ryan puts you in the shoes of a soldier. Like you feel the the mist in your face of the sort of you 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 smell the sand. You can you hear the, the screams of your of, of of your friends like as you know as they're you know shouting "mummy" when hold, trying to hold their their guts in. Right in here you don't see it because I have a feeling that this is a little bit more elevated is the word i want to use staged maybe it's very clean it's a very clean film it almost feels like they're taking turns almost like okay i'm gonna like it's it's choreographed to a fault as though like and they just rolled with their first take on this where they just run from a to b turn right the japanese soldier jumps out do a suplex i don't know (laughs) stick him with a bayonet shout and Repeat, and then this feels like it doesn't have this sort of. It feels like it maybe doesn't have like a natural flow to it. Maybe that's that's what what kind of just sets me off. Yeah, especially if you consider that John Woo is always treated guns as swords. Mm-hmm. That's how he's always, he's always said. Like I started doing martial arts films, and then it just transitioned into gun fights and shootouts. But if you think about it, primarily uses pistols. So mm-hmm. it's pr- mostly close quarters. It's this very light weapon that you can use to like flip around and jump and wave it however you want. And in this film, you really cannot do that if you have rifles, Garands, uh, a Thompson, maybe a little bit of Nicolas Cage just waving the Thompson around is fun, I guess. <laughs> but it's not very easy to maneuver with these weapons. And so it does feel a little bit like you feel the choreography a bit more mm-hmm. in those sequences. Uh, and occasionally, like when the movie really shines in terms of the fluidity of the movements, is when they go either end to hand with like knives and stuff, or uh, bayonets, or with the pistols. Like those are mm-hmm. the moments where it feels more intense, it feels dirtier. Because otherwise, if you're shooting with just a rifle, 
it's hard mm-hmm. to make it feel more ground like I don't know. Grounded, I, I think, think is a good word. Yeah, hmm. I guess. Yeah. But yeah. Less grounded. I, you know, is it, see, with with that, I would also kind of just say that, uh, you know, I, I want to say that Saving Private Ryan kind of ruined World War films for a, for a while, because you can't come close to this. Because if you do, then you, you kind of risk being called a, a knockoff. And then if you don't, then you never live up to the sort of the legacy of, like, the world has changed, right? Mm-hmm. And then I feel like, in the 80s or early 90s, this film would have probably done a bit better, like b- registered mm-hmm. better with audiences and critics, maybe because, like, you feel like no one ever reloads any 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 weapon. They're just <laughs> like Nicolas Cage just just jumps into a building and just go, <laughs> and then this magazine's this long, like this the bullet's this thick, so this, he probably has like 17 rounds in there, and he goes like, <laughs> and just. Are we in a God war is film? On his side. Uh, well, yeah, but then are we in a war film that's trying to be realistic, or are we in a fifties war film that's trying to be more or less a, as just call it a rara hooray USA propagandaistic, right? Where the only thing that stands between this and that is the fact that John Wayne's too old to do this or dead, right? Probably dead. He probably was dead at the time. That's actually something that I want to ask about this film to both of you. Do you think this is pro-war or propagandistic or patriotic in some way? Outside of the horrors of war aspect, like, do you feel it shines through as something like a letter to Iwo Jima and all that? I don't know if, if, if I took away any sort of element of, of patriotism. Mm. I mean, you know, you get what the, the actual sort of point of the film is and... Um, it, Maybe it would have benefited from being more more patriotic, because I think I think as one of the the critical reviews said, it's the way it touches on the code talk is is very superficial. And if it was going to be patriotic, it, it, you know, as we keep saying, it would have put them front and center because you know these are people who weren't really acknowledged by America, and the stories of them is only there's only so much out there. And um, I, I think of like the uh, so when I talked about this on sort of, sort of my side of things, um, there's that sort of famous statue of like the six American soldiers trying to hoist that American flag oh, up. That's, and... that's the Iwo Jima flag, flags yeah. of our fathers sort of poster, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that that's exactly mm-hmm. the one. And uh, the, the sixth soldier at the back was a, a someone called Ira Hayes, who was um, a sort of like a Native American soldier, and there were, there were songs about him, sort of the ballad of. Ira Hayes. This is like a song that even like Johnny Cash covered, and so like that. Like the st- the story is sort of like out there, but it's one of those things like oh, we, don't, we don't really need you should to know about that. And funnily enough, Adam Beach actually portrays him in Flags of Our Fathers. Also, a little fun oh. fact as well. Did you know that the famous picture was staged? So the fa- famous photograph of these six mm. guys planting the flag was taken after they actually planted the flag because of course they took the they took the island planted the flag and just like that's it we're done here and then the, you know like backup the comes office. in and the photographer comes in just like guys can we do it again because this would be good for new york times and they were like okay fine so, so just get six of you and just pretend it's really hard <laughs> so, so, 
What a moment. The real, the real war was the PR effort. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> they got, like, John Ford to make um, propaganda films, or, like, Frank Capra and people like this. It was, oh, it was nuts. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean, like, like I said, I think I think maybe maybe some more, if you just focus on, like... I think it's in the way, say, like, you look at, you know, World War Two, and I, I suppose, like, the, the British forces, and you think of, like... Oh, like the good strapping lads from home were sort of drafted at that 16, 17, 18 and fighting for the cause on the beaches and stuff. Then you don't realize, like, what it was, um, sort of like the, the, the Polish forces and sort of like the, the sort of Sikh and Indian forces that joined us. And like, no one talks about, you know, it wasn't just England who saved the world, it, it wasn't like just, just like America joining in at the last second to, to save us from the, from those. You know those goddamn Germans. Um, it, it was like a, a joint effort with so many nations and people, and you know, like if it had just taken more umbrage with that, and then that you were like, "Oh, this is the story of the Navajo," uh, also starring mostly Nicholas Cage at the end. Uh, you just get a line with Texas as like, "They never broke the code." Um, credits. I was like. Wait, wait, what film? What film was I watching here? I mean, I, I didn't mind the, the line at the end. By the way, they never, as in, because it, it, there's quite a lot of baked into this sort of sentence. It's like, by the way, no one ever succeeded in capturing one of those guys. Fair enough, right? Because I, I suppose uh, this because is they were all killed. I mean, R.I.P. Whitehorse. Yeah. So yeah, like, you can read it, read it in so many ways. Like, did they actually have them killed? Ever? Because I mean, yeah, you know what? I don't. I mean, just to answer a question, Nick. I don't think this is a pro-war film because I feel like it's hard to make a pro-war film just just by just showing the war. Like you look at the violence, you'll not, your natural response as a human will be uh, to recoil a little bit and then just maybe rethink your life a little bit and then just think about history. And so I don't think John Woo or the screenwriters are making an active effort to say like, look how great it was. Look at us. Mm-hmm. I suppose there is a danger you could say like, but it's all Americans. You're know, like, fair enough. If you read a little bit it about the Pacific, it looks cool. Well, yeah, but if you like, if you read about like the Pacific War a little bit, and then you realize it was mostly Americans in there because like the British, the French, whoever, like, whenever they were not collaborating with the Nazis, you know, <laughs> or whoever, whoever, everybody else who was involved, like mostly they were tied down everywhere else. Like, the Pacific War was mostly an American enterprise. Like, retaking mm-hmm. all these islands one by one in just brutal strife was kind of their achievement. With, I think, the British were slow, kind of helping out and they were kind of more engaged in, like, the Philippines and possibly Singapore, where these these used to be kind of just um, British outposts at the time. But, but more or less, you could say, like, well, it could have used a little bit more flag-waving then, but I feel like no one really wanted to wave the flag for the Pacific War, and that kind of comes comes back to the fact that so, like this is something I heard on on Hardcore History, which is the best podcast out there, where like veterans from the Western Front, like in from Europe, would meet after like 20, fifty years after they would meet, like the Germans, the Brits, the Americans, they would meet and they would have conversations, and they would be like, you know, we fought. But, you know, we can live now side by side. It's it's all good now. 
never the same for, with, 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 between the Americans and Japanese in the Pacific War because that war was brutal. Like, this was nuts. Like, no one was taking any prisoners. The Japanese were known for just atrocities across the board. They were just gunning down wounded. They were, they were just doing horrible things in general. And they were also just staging these suicide attacks. They were just scary. And then this proceed, per- persisted for like decades after, like veter- veterans of the Pacific where they wouldn't even talk about what happened to them because they were just like, this was, this was crazy. Um, so I feel this naturally lends the film to be more of an anti-war sort of situation. And I feel it's a little bit maybe at odds with itself because it feels like John Woo looks like he's fetishizing the violence a little bit because he slows down. He, there's these slow-mo moments of the bullet comes in and then it comes out, right? Or, and by the way, like how many times do you have to be shot through your calf before you decide that it's not a good idea to carry a wounded soldier? Because, you know, like, but then, but then again, Nicolas Cage is superhuman. We've established that he's John Wick. <laughs> So, yeah, I feel like by this token, it's more of an anti-war film than anything else, especially that when, when, you, when you think about uh, even with the sort of Native American angle, I think there's maybe there's a throwaway sentence. Maybe the f- fault of the film will be that it doesn't show, but it tells you where Ben was like, why, why are you here? It's like, I'm here to fight for my country. And it's like, what do you mean your country? And it's just like, I'm just thinking to myself, it's more, more of his country than it's your country. It's, you know, like he's been there longer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's just you're you know you're a, you're an immigrant as far as I, as far as he's concerned you know so I I don't know like I feel like it's more of a, a like a more express expressly anti anti war film kind of undercut by the fact that just it lacks the realism that maybe would have helped because John Woo doesn't operate in realism he oper- operates in opera if you if you mm-hmm. know it's more of an operatic sure. sort of World War Two film yeah. as far as I'm concerned I hope it answers yeah. your question no it does it does both both great answers no i i do agree it's i was re-watching it the anti-war elements stood out far more than the first time around mm-hmm. um there are a couple of references i don't remember who says it like early on in the film they talk about like oh we're killing all the japanese blah 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 and it's like ah but you know like whichever country is going to cut off our gas supplies we're we're always going to go to war with them <laughs> I was just thinking of with today's climate, this this quote uh, resonated differently. Um, but then even later on in the film, you have this, um, like Nicolas Cage is just obsessed with following the orders and they kind of, you know, criticize that in a strong way, which is something you usually see in John Woo films. He's always very anti-establishment, kind of following rebels, people who go against the system a little bit. And seeing that in a, in a war setting was like, yeah. It worked. Mm-hmm. I I think I was reading reviews with people um, saying this was pro war. It was like, mm, oh, I don't same see people. it. Is it Roger Ebert again, who thinks like Starship Trooper was a pro war propaganda? I clearly didn't watch it, but you know. <laughs> so, yeah, the only, yeah. only thing I'll say about old good old Roger is that he has historically been a big fan of Nicolas Cage, so he gets a pass as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but he also like, how did I would have to dig out his review because he's he's a fan of Nicolas Cage, but he also doesn't like violence in films for some reason. I mean, rest in peace. But you know, he he had this sort of like a chip on his shoulder when it came to like on screen violence. I feel like he was just like, oh, this is fetishizing violence. One star, thumbs down. Gene, you're you're supposed to hate this, okay? Because we're not leaving this room until you hate it. And then that that's that's Roger Ebert in a nutshell, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think he. I'm just looking at his review now. He gave it two stars. I'm, I'm just trying to mm-hmm. skip to the part where he says that Cage was great, um, which I'm just going to assume that he said uh, because that's what he always says. Uh, because he's a, he's he's a good boy. He's a, an honorary golden hogger, um, as I think I've dubbed him before on my side of things. But um, you know, Cage. As I said he's a superhuman. He uh, he gets he gets passes. He does what he wants. He takes bullets differently. He takes grenades differently. Mm-hmm. He um, shrugs off hearing loss. He's the super. The, he was Captain America before Captain America. He's, I was thinking as well. You know, if if we look at the Cage multiverse of here, which I which I like to dub Nicholas Cage's multiverse of sadness. <laughs> at the, Oh, no. Nice. He's 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 also fighting <laughs> the Japanese on the USS Indianapolis as well. That's so, right. So he's 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 fighting a lot of wars at the same time. Um, is Nicholas? He's he's saving us all. So on, <laughs> he he is an American hero. It would be so much better if in the USS Indianapolis he had the scar on his ear, and we just like, is this the same guy? Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm just, just I'm just delivering the bomb. Cool. It's all connected, and I can't keep stressing this. The Cage multiverse is real. Is he a I mean, time traveler as well? That will kind of explain quite a lot of movies as well. Well, this is what he's in. Uh, he played the same character in Deadfall and was it Southern Fury? Um, he played the same character of, of, of Eddie, so um, completely unexplained. So he's played the same characters. He, he's done some sequels. He's been, he keeps popping up in World War II. Um, I'm just saying the evidence is out there. Believe the evidence of your ears and eyes, my friends. <laughs> I, like, I, I like this theory. I love this. <laughs> it's got legs. I'm telling you, it's got legs. Yeah. I mean, in just in seriousness, by the way, what do you guys make of the sort of his inner struggle? Which, which, if I if I dig, I'm not sure if I can dig out the note, by the way, because I closed my tab because I'm an idiot. Oh, John no. Woo wanted this film to be more of more of a, more of a film about the friendship and the struggle of Nicolas Cage's character with the order he's been given because he's he, the the reason he's been given this order is because he follows orders like a stupid idiot. I'm just like they told me to hold this position, therefore I sacrificed nine people. And then I somehow magically survived to get a medal that I don't like. Um, so he, I suppose he gets, guilt. yeah, but he gets mm. the job specifically because he's the, he's one guy who he's the one guy who will obey until the um, just without without question, right? So and he starts having this sort of moral quandary because he he almost feels like he doesn't really want to be friends with ben and ben is kind of like this puppy just like hi what are you what are you eating and he's just like no don't i don't want to make friends because then i'll have to like it's like he's getting a dog and you're just like like a dad who's been given a dog and he's just like i don't want to make friends because i'll fall in love with you and i'll have to put you to sleep 15 years from now when the kids are out at the house and now it will be my job and i'll be in tears like i feel like this is this relationship that he's trying to fear so I don't know, what do you guys make of this sort of the, his central conflict? I don't necessarily mean his conflict as meta as as a metaphor for a dad owning a dog, but you know, <laughs> just just in general. That was the secret goal of the movie. <laughs> just, um, yeah. I I think it's very cute. I think it works. I think there's chemistry there, and it also helps that this is a more subdued Nicolas Cage performance. 
is going for something very different than, than his other collaboration with Wu, which also showcases his massive range. I think it's 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 great, and those moments are fun. Like they're just playing fun bits. Um, I I I, I, I was reading the differences between the theatrical and the extended cut, and I love that in the extended cut there's this little exchange that they have in the first meeting where. Um, Adam Beach is super excited about going to war. It's like, oh, I cannot wait to get into combat. You ever seen any? No. <laughs> well, no, that's why. That's why you're excited. Strapping then. He's a puppy. A He's a puppy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that would have been the more emotional ending that uh, Nicholas Cage had to take Yahtzee to the, to the, <laughs> the, the special farm. <laughs> Just of, behind the shed, out of town. If he, yeah, Come with if, me. if if that was the ending, it was a much more like of mice and men ending. Like, <laughs> that's sort of case. like yellow rabbit, red rabbit, him right in the back of the head. So like, I, I, I think on a second view, it worked a bit more for me when I sort of just think about like, okay, it sets up like that he lost all of his sort of platoon at the start, and now for his own reasons. I guess it's, all he's got is the war. That's all he knows. That's the only thing he thinks that he's good at. Um, now it's like, I don't think it lingers on it too much because even on two viewings, when I was watching the film, it wasn't obvious that this was necessarily the character arc. So I don't know if the film could have made it like a touch more explicit that he would be scared to be close to someone because he's lost people before because he, he has this whole... Um, I guess country and army and, and he, how we sort of torn between honor and duty and, and sort of that kind of thing. Um, so you've got, I think you've got to read between the lines a bit and sort of think about it after the film is finished, but like, oh, okay. So his character arc does actually make a bit more sense than I thought it did. Um, but you get like the little, you know the, the bit pieces that they're all sort of warming towards like the Navajo and I think it's, it's sort of not, I think he's, he's done that like what flower or dust drawing of like a church and like oh you're Catholic I'm Catholic oh, what, what, a, what a lark that is and he slammed the table for some reason I still have no idea why he does that I think this is where Andy would step in and say because it's because John Woo is uh has 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 a very strong Catholic background, I think, right? And upbringing, yeah. Oh, well, it, it kind of make, makes sense a little bit, and this may be uh, one of those things like, ah, oh, there's a moment in there. I could put put Nicolas Cage in the house, and there's going to be a flower. Let's him let let's have him draw a church so I can feel at home. They didn't let me have doves in there, so I can have this. They, they, they can take my doves, but they'll never take my cake ingredients away from me. Yeah, um, <laughs> they can. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you know, like I, I, I sort of, I don't think appreciate is the right word. But then, do you think this woman he... was making pasta while these people were attacking? <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> these people are just like these marines are just, <laughs> and she's just flowering the surface because she's she there needs was, to make noodles. Like, come on, <laughs> there was a there was a pan on the stove in the background, a rolling pin covered in like flour, yeah. like an apron. She was there it was like the, uh, the great Japanese bake-off going on inside that. Uh, like it's like a surprise that these Americans come out of nowhere. Like they've been fighting like two miles down the road for like a week now. <laughs> I wish I wish these Americans would stop doodling in my flower. I'm trying to run a business. 
in very pressing times. This is not not conducive to my uh, to my output here. <laughs> um, then uh, yeah, I, th- I think like I'd, I wish they'd sort of made it like a bit more obvious that he was starting to care a bit more, and then it was. You know, he was a bit tearful when he sort of hatched a grenade white horse, um, but then he was just kind of like, just like, oh, like, like, oh, like, where's, where's white horse? What happens? Like, I, uh, he's dead. I uh, blew him. I blew him up. I uh, threw, threw a grenade at him. He's obliterated in a million pieces. Have you tried the noodles down the road? <laughs> um, the, like, I think the the, the friendship sort of. It, it it's implied and it's sort of there and it's not until the end is like no one else dies today. Um, I mean, I think they could have done a bit more with it because I'm an idiot and I don't like having to think about what things mean. Tell tell me, show me. Um, Would have been much but, easier if but, he if he drew a willy in the in the flower. <laughs> yeah, then, then, imagine the same scene. He just walks in there, takes the stick, and the same sort of excruciating detail and sort of close up, and just starts drawing these lines, and just pulls back, and it's a cock. <laughs> I mean, you've you've got you've got uh, cinema. <laughs> Christian Slater's character and White Horse bonding over music, and they're duetting, and then you've got Yahtzee and Ender's bonding over their immature love of drawing penises. Yeah, <laughs> now that that's the film. Because uh, Ben the Yatsi film. then turns out that he has a real talent of of drawing real veiny ones, so you know, <laughs> like oh sort God. of like uh, John oh, Hill in Superbad. <laughs> he was a real good cock drawer. <laughs> That's yeah. This is what it, this is what it could have been, but two thousand and two just wasn't ready for that. <laughs> it was too early oh, for this. They, those cowards wanted Scooby Doo, not uh... a. <laughs> well, yeah, arguably the superior film, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, I don't oh, know. I have a thing more can, iconic. Yeah, we're we're nearing the, the end of the road in here. So how about we might, might as well just because there's gonna be a, maybe a few sort of scenes here and there kind of sprinkled in the conversation. So maybe just uh final final takes on the film, and we'll just do our top threes and bottom threes and peace out. So final thoughts on Wind Talkers, Daryl. What's your what's your verdict? Again, I I appreciated some things a bit more in a second viewing like the the action is exciting and um you know as, as we can sort of wax lyrical um there are not many that do action as well as john woo and certainly on the scale of this like it was great and everything and um again as as, as like you know as i've said many times there's a good story to be told here and there's one or two things that can sort of hook you into this but some parts of the script are a bit disappointing obviously as we said like it's a it's a war film there are going to be cliches and cliched characters but just a lot of the characters are just uh not that interesting you can't really feel attached because for better or worse there's a lot of them cage's character even though he dominates more with the film than I think he should. There's not much in there apart from you know, the occasional wince and old soldier has flashback. Um, I liked Christian Slater in this. He wasn't in it that much. He's not given that much to do with them. Be nice and play the harmonica. Um, 
again, like, was it, it, it's the eternal question of this film. Was John Woo the right choice for it? There's nods in the stunt work. Some, if you're looking for it, there is some trademark Woo in there, and there's, there's some nice choreographed flashes. Um, and you know, he, he said it's meant to be about sort of loyalty and morality, and which I, I guess the film is supposed to be about, but. Again, this is supposed to be a story of like the code talkers and sort of the Navajo, and they they play second fiddle in their own story. Um, Two thousand and two, this was the year of Scuba Duba. This was not the year of of the Wind Talker. Um, and I said it before: if this film was made again today, should it be more of a straight out action film? Should the Navajo take more precedence in this? Would this have benefited more if it was? moved away from the the action set pieces and was more dare i say very very broadly more indie in its approach um i don't know but i think the 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 shortest possible version is on paper looks great in reality it is lacking mm-hmm. it's fair enough i suppose i suppose it's a it's a it's a fair enough take nick did you warm up a little bit more no, I I loved the movie the first time around. I gave it four point five stars. Oh, I was I was into Wind Talkers, yes, yes. And this time around, it's it's definitely not one of my like it. I put it in my top ten Nicolas Cage films. Now it's in the top twenty. <laughs> it's towards the bottom of the top twenty. Every single um, time, we're just like your, your estimation always kind of lowers after you hear what I think about this. <laughs> no, no, it's not you. It's not you. It's just you know. I, I think it's personal growth as well. Like the first time I watched it, it was a bit of a more shallow reading as well. I definitely acknowledge some of the faults a bit more this time around. Um, but I still really like it. I still think it's it's better than like Broken Arrow. And another film that we'll talk about later on uh, from John Wu, but overall, yeah, it's it's everything that you guys that that you said there. It's it, the action is exciting, but I think the melodrama works in here. Um, I think the cast, even though it's a bit too big for its own good, delivers very strong performances. Um, and I think it's despite coming out at a time where you were having a new World War II film every five months and we had like Pearl Harbor before this one, the bunch of others, um, I think this managed to have its own identity visually. And even though it's not necessarily memorable, I, I last saw this like three years ago, four years ago, actually, geez. Um and some things, you know, I for, forgot quite a bit of the movie, which is never a good sign for me. But still, I think it's well worth watching. I think it's unfairly maligned. I think people are like one star, one and a half. It's horrible. It's jingoistic. Uh, poorly made. All of that nonsense. I think a bit too harsh. Um, I can take I can take all the all the other criticisms of the movie and the exchange that we had today. I think people saying it's a horrible film is a bit like. I mean, probably have, you know, maybe really high standards. Good for them. Hmm. I'm warming up to this. I'll say this. Hey. Um, I, ne- I never liked it. I think I do now. I think I, I can oh. see this. I mean, it's... I kind of like my culinary sort of like metaphors and whatever. It kind of feels like there's just, there's a good chunk of meat in there. It's just covered in this sort of schmaltz that you have to just scrape off all this fat. And then you realize, look, there's a steak in here. Like <laughs> it just feels you like have to so- scrape off all the Hollywood. Yeah, there's there are these uh, like you have to look past all the sort of uh, 
the, the white people cure racism, 42 Jackie Robinson, get out of the pool, sort of, you know, <laughs> sort of cliche racism, or you have to get over this sort of these schmaltzy hotel, hotel Rwanda moments where they're just like, we need to appeal to these 80 year olds uh, in the academy because otherwise they're not going to get it. Um, I, I think that if you look past it, then there is a there is there is something in here, and I feel like maybe the biggest tragedy of this film is that John Woo doesn't deal in realism. That's that was now was the name of the game at the time because Saving Private Ryan kind of brought this sort of to the table, and then he's more into melodrama, he's more into opera, and I I think if you if you don't watch this, uh, I think if you watch this as I mean maybe there, yeah maybe there is this sort of thing of. Maybe it's not as memorable because it doesn't have these scenes that you, they just sear into your brain, like the Omaha Beach sort of beginning of Saving Private Ryan. I just I feel like I'm a massive sort of shill for Spielberg now, but you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> always wear. Well, always wear. It's just you know, it's a. It's, it feels like if you you kind of have to watch this as a like try to see the John Woo film in it, not a World War Two film in it, and you kind of get something out of this because then you'll see the opera, you'll see the melodrama, you'll see the western, you'll see the samurai film in there, you'll see you'll see these constituent elements that kind of just elevate it above the sort of the schlock of of, of this being of this trying desperately to be this uh, the Oscar bait of the year. Like this is the help of its year if you think about it. Uh, yeah. and, and then if you can if you can do this and if you can look past the James Horner score which we didn't touch on but it's gross like it <laughs> just feels like why is this music here like I don't care I don't why, why? not his finest achievement no it's just that. like these this like it doesn't doesn't sell the movie at all. It almost sells it like, oh yeah, after, we're in the fifties and John Wayne's just about behind. He's taking a shit now, so Nicholas Cage is filling in. Like it feels like. Like that, and just uh, it takes me out completely. It doesn't feel like it, it. Also, feels like a James Horner score that he just was asked to write on a weekend, so he just <laughs> filled it in with his cliches. The everywhere. It's just okay. So overall, I'm happy to see it again, and maybe it will grow a little bit better. And I feel like that this this has helped that I'm watching these sort of John Woo Hollywood films in succession now and kind of just I'm more attuned to look for certain things than than rather than examining it in it as as a product of the genre or anything else. So that's me on this. Top threes. So Daryl, what don't you why don't why don't you lead the way? Give us your top three moments. Or if you have honorable mentions, go nuts as well, you know. Floor is yours. Uh, top threes that I was looking at. Um, I think I think the the first one was sort of like the uh, one of the long fights. I think it was on Sandpai Island. Uh, it was very exciting. A lot of moving parts, engaging camera work, and John Woo can navigate through the choreography. Um, and get some sort of like Navajo wind talking in action as well there, which was great. It's like, oh, look, it, it's the name of the film. <laughs> the Yay. They're doing it. Uh, they're, they're doing the thing. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess you can sort of make a case for any of the long war scenes because they look really good. They look really, really good. Um, one, I think a second one going off the back of that was... Um, so the whole Enders and Yahtzee infiltrating the enemy lines to redirect fire, um, and mostly because 
Cage was just taking out falls with like a giant like LMG, which it was a badass moment. <laughs> I was like, yes, get in, go for it. And uh, the third top moment, and this is just more of a reflection of me as a person rather than anything to do with the film. It was uh, Joanna's eating his peas and watching a seagull as an idea of a view. I thought that was great. That was superb. I would say it was one of my favorite moments of the film. Give me more close-up shots of seagulls in cinema, you cowards. Um, I, th- I think uh, truly magical. A magical <laughs> seagull moment on the beach. Was there also a pelican in the in this sequence? Please tell me there was a pelican. Could have been definitely gold. Well, like I have an m- image in my head of these three, maybe four birds just in formation, and I feel like, are they pelicans? Like, is this? Like, oh, they're I'm... flying away in a shot, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, mm. that's a good selection. <laughs> Varied, if nothing else. Niccolo, make me proud. Tell me your, your top three moments or top seven well, or top 17. Know, I don't know. Since Randy isn't here, I, I have honorable mentions this time. First time in a while. They're back. Back, baby. Um, honorable mentions the little baby wailing in the opening scene, holding out for Adam Beach. Sad, very sad. Poor baby. I wonder what they did to him behind the scenes. Maybe slapped him in the face. Who knows? To make him cry. Uh, number two, after, after the whole opening sequence, you get to the first action scene that we mentioned. There's this very cool shot of, of the river, this very clean river. There, there's a bit of blood that starts pouring in and then there's just a body in it and then the action scene begins it's a very disturbing disturbing piece of imagery um another little bit that's that's in the film is like uh, during the first major set piece when they reach the island uh there's like one man that gets stuck on barbed wire which is brutal and and people try to walk him out and they all get shot to hell like barbed wire just bothers me i got cut with it once very simple barbed wire when i was younger just just not good memories with that um and there's a lot of cool (laughs) there you go (laughs) there you go um and yeah there's some cool end-to-end combat but top three moments number three is the I, i forgot the character's name but there's during the second to last set piece you know, where White Horse gets killed off and blah, blah, blah. Like the opening, there's the, the guy with the, the, the flamethrower. Mm-hmm. Oh, His no. death, like he gets shot oh. and they hit the fuel tank. And he's just in moments wholesale. Hey, we're starting. <laughs> we're starting. He's just engulfed <laughs> in flames. It's That's one of those things, like you were mentioning, Jakub, that's one of those things where you just wouldn't it's, do it anymore. It's now. Brian Van Holt, by the way. There we go. There we go. Because Private he Harrigan. Super... Harrigan. It looks so similar to Noah Emmerich. They're, they're like, they're, he, they look yeah, the same. Yes, yes. <laughs> I can't be mistaken, though. And then when he popped up, I was like, I was like, you were dead. You blew up in the flamethrower. Then I checked the cast. I was like, oh, it's a different character. <laughs> two ways you can distinguish the two is like one is one has a flamethrower and and two, one of them, like when they open their mouth, is not it's racist. Super racist. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's a good indication. Um, Number two, Christian Slater playing the harmonica and oh. bonding with White Horse. There you go. It's delightful. It's that's <laughs> that's to me, that's probably the most John Wu part of the film. Mm-hmm. That kind of brotherly love and kinship and like talking about like, oh, I'm playing to the cows and all of that. Like it's deeply, deeply endearing to me. But number one, you mentioned it, Daryl. 
the whole part where they have to go undercover is so good. Mm. It's so good. Like the action set pieces, I do agree with some of the criticism that I was reading online that they're a bit too repetitive for John Woo's standard. It's a lot of just wide battles, people shooting each other. He tries to make all of them a little bit different in one way or another. Doesn't always work to make them stand out. But that sequence is great, especially if you consider that they have to go undercover to use the radio of the Japanese because they're getting shot at by actual by 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 the US military. <laughs> There's <laughs> crazy friendly fire going on there, which is also, I think, a, a bit of an indictment of uh, of war casualties mm-hmm. of war. It's like yeah, it sucks. You know, if only they had a cell phone. All right, so there's going to be an echo chamber in here because I my stuff <laughs> my list has been picked apart. Okay, uh, I have two honorable mentions. So one, the, the already mentioned the helicopter pan of the battlefield on Saipan. There's, it's just when stuff's happening in there, I'm just thinking that there's like twenty million dollars worth of explosions in just this one shot. It's just great. Uh, another one is what I just have in my notes as the man on fire, which, which is. <laughs> Private Harrigan, uh, after, after he just lures the, the little girl out with a piece of chocolate, so he ju- she jumps over a, o- o- over a trench for for a piece Spe- of chocolate. Speaking of uh, dogs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, take it. <laughs> It's Go. good for good for him that he saved the girl. Although, like, if I if I carried essentially a massive tank of petrol on my back, last thing I would want to do would be carry a chi- would be to carry a child just in, just just as a safety precaution, just in case something happens. Bullets are whizzing, and he was just like, "Okay, Jesus." Anyway, so that's the that's now top three moments. The knife throw, white horse saving. Uh, what's his name? No, the, I'm. Chick, um, Chick, is it Chick? Private first class Charles Chick clusters Noah Emmerich, yes, because uh, it you, you see it from from behind the the back of of Chicks, and you can see how the knife goes past the camera. I'm like, how did they do this? Is, I hope there's CGI in this. Otherwise, I hope there is a plexiglass behind the camera, and and <laughs> so that the camera operator is not in danger because holy shit, this looks close. Uh, okay, number two. It's the already mentioned the harmonica and flute moment. Essentially, two moments when they're playing these songs, and I, but then the whole moment, I just feel like the harmonica is essentially cowboy instrument, and then the flute is a Native American instrument. I feel like there 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 is a poetry in there. I don't know. I like it. I, I know it's cliche, but it's fine. I lo- I love it, and the, and the tune itself is great. And the best moment for me is the "You're a Good Marine" moment. Um, and just I think two times in the film so I really like the moment where he has this sort of he almost like has this spirit broken in the graveyard and I, I really like Nicolas Cage actually just trying to kind of just search for something in his character and he's actually finding something useful in in the pile of cliche that was left by the screenwriters and I really love how this kind of comes to fruition in the, in the end so it's almost like a like a two moments rolled into one because it comes back again where He's validated by Ben. I, I love the this is the little drama in this film is kind of interesting. I feel like John Wood tried to do to flesh this out and it kind of comes out in these two little moments. I really like it. Bottoms? Daryl? Show me your bottoms. And I absolutely will. Camera exclusive. <laughs> um first bottom for me was kind of I guess in general, like the character of like 
Rita didn't really mm-hmm. service anything for me. And as I said before, just sort of helping uh, Enders pass the hearing test because <laughs> I, I don't know why she finds him a, attractive. Um, it's not really established why she's kind of risking her position to assist a clearly unwell man other than he's got an addiction to war. Um, and I don't know. I still don't really get entirely the necessity of her addition to the film. Um, it, it, I, I don't know. It, it's kind of a mystery to me that sort of stuck out like a little sort of sore thumb there. Um, the second was... Um, the knife scene that you mentioned, not oh, for the not, like I'll, I'll, ex, I'll explain why. I'll explain. I thought the knife throw itself, great, mm-hmm. and White Horse going out with the bang, getting some kills in before he gets graded, heroic exit, um, all grand. Uh, Charlie's cushions um, later, rather getting his head cut off and a little prosthetic head on the floor, wonderful. I'm all into that. The only reason I didn't enjoy it because that's the that's the moment when like. The, the, the racist soldier's like, oh, he saved me. I guess they're just <laughs> like we are. And then he's talking about... <laughs> I said this, this is going to go there. <laughs> and, and it led into what you were saying, and he said, like, oh, 50 years from now, like, we could be having, we could be having, like, a sit-down with the Japs. He looks at the camera and winks. He's like, eh? <laughs> um, I was like, yeah, cool. And generally, like, he's, you know, it, it's a trope. It's an archetype and all that stuff. And they, you know, before that they're just like fighting in the water and stuff, and then he's like, "Oh, you saved my life, and now you've you've displayed to me your worth as a human being. I'll, I'll let you off this time, but I still think you're 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 bad because you're not like me." Um, like, okay, cool. Um, and then my 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 third bottom, and it's one I joked about earlier, but it's it, it was again it's it's. Uh, ben Yatsi suddenly becoming a one-man wrecking crew at the end of the <laughs> film. Uh, a single-player COD campaign given sort of physical form. Like He's a yes, fast learner, okay? <laughs> he's a fast something. Um, he he lost Charlie, and then he ingested Charlie, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, like, Fighting yes, for two men, literally. <laughs> he's, God, he was on a different wavelength. I mean... Like, yes, like he lost White Horse and it was like a big blow to him because he's like, okay, now I understand the real sort of horrors of war. But it's just, no matter how tragic and painful, like, you know, I'm not saying that we should have had like a movie montage of him like running down the beach and doing push-ups and running to the top (laughs) of the mountain like a Rocky movie or something. But it's like, from what we've seen, it has like, all it's been established is that you can sort of translate um, as is your sort of main objective to do, um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not trying to come across as like nitpicky or anything, but it's like, well, I, I haven't seen you go through this like military and firearms training. Like from what the film's established is that you do the code talking, but you haven't necessarily got firearms training, and suddenly you're racking up a body count bigger than like half the platoon combined. Uh, make it make sense. Um, like John Yahtzee Wick, um, and 
And then at the end, he's just like, well, war was a thing that happened. I'm naming you after a man I sort of knew, my boy. He was a great man. Um, hooray, America, the end. Eagle Squawks, American flag, America, fuck yeah. Also, by the way, do you think the game of Yahtzee is named after a Native American character? Mm. <laughs> Yahtzee! <laughs> I've never inquired. And now I need to find that. <laughs> it's just... Oh, by the way, I just just realized, remember when you were asking about uh, whether this is an anti or pro war film, like one of your top moments when you're saying, you see this river and this river is just a beautiful image. And now you see a body flowing through it. That image alone (laughs) tells you it's an anti-war film. Just, just in general, just this, this is just a distillation of like, that's okay. We're in an anti-war film. Wait, I'm not supposed to like it. No. You mean it's not supposed to look good? You're, you're, you're supposed to feel uncomfortable about, about fetishizing the violence. Just like, look at the bullets flying. And you're just like, oh, shit. This is not good, guys. But anyway. Look at Nicole. Christian Slater's wax head on the floor. That, true um, that. Nico, tell them. Now, now it's your time to show, show us your bottom. I have one mini ugly uh, okay. in Grand Dishonor. Uh there's quite a lot of delayed squibs and early jumps in the first part of the movie. It was a little bit distracting. You can see, like, people, like, squibs exploding, but the, the, the gunshot didn't go off, and then they go like, ah. It's like, okay. So again, it's in, the, it's in the opening action scene. There's something weird about that sequence. Um, also, a lot of jumping with the explosions. It's like, that was a bit too early, you know, you can tell. But, whatever. Number three just rita we've talked about rita <laughs> she has this savior complex i feel bad i like Frances connor i think she's a very good actress but a, a thankless role this feels like the fact they shot this in two in the year 2000 but then pearl arbor came out the year after it feels like it's inspired from that it feels like they're like oh we need a romance in here it's like no we don't no we don't get out of here number two the use of stock footage very meaningful stands out yeah. so much very it's low like depth the as well quali- very low depth like the quality <laughs> changes you see the grains it's like you couldn't again like i we're making statements now in 2022 but probably they couldn't do a good job with cgi and like you said it would have been way too expensive to actually film it for real i, I, so feel, fair this enough. A, I feel this uh, is a like a test screening note or something like this where producers were saying like you need we need to show the ship we need to show the ship like how do we like the film wrapped a year ago well how do we do this uh i know go to the library and dig out some dig out some archival footage i feel this is one of those <laughs> i probably wouldn't be surprised doesn't make it good I, <laughs> yeah it's, it's something honestly this could have been a stylistic flourish that they could have implemented multiple times throughout the film like if they showed the airplanes and the, it's the actual airplanes oh my god like that thing could have been very cool actually but just for free shots in the entire movie it's they so had the real charming. radios didn't they, oh, they did. They're radios from the period someone lent, lent them a few probably they broke a few as well <laughs> burning Ben's back um but number one, just Nicolas Cage's injuries in the opening is just no. Just have him lose a finger as well. Have him, have him be more scarred. I don't know, but this is that's proper Hollywood, you know. Have him be like in face off, like completely messed up with missing, missing bits in his face. I don't know. <laughs> they could have pushed it harder. Just, it's, not, it feels not like the it's, ear just, just full on like Harvey Dent. Two face, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> there you go. It's like embrace it, embrace the the horrors of it. Like I remember, I was properly disturbed when we were studying uh, World War One. Um, there were pictures of amputees in the history book, mm-hmm. like people who actually were near grenades when they blew up. You're not gonna get out of it with like a little bit of a sexy scratch behind your left eye and ah, missing a little bit of the of the ear. You know, <laughs> do you want to read? Do you want to really shit your pants? Like uh, a lot of the amputations in World War One and American Civil War were just done in sort of like field hospitals. It's not like they just like, oh, someone took my leg off wow. because stuff ex- like a shell exploded. No, you just get a piece of shrapnel in you, and then you get gangrene, and just someone in the in the field hospital goes like, "We need to take the leg off." Sadly, we have no anesthetic, so we need to bite down on this piece of wood, son, and pray to God you don't die in the process. Let me get my saw. And then just you know, yeah, like they're walking through these through these swamps here as well. It's like, man, you're gonna get so many infections. <laughs> this is not healthy. This is not fun. No, this, this is not fun. Oh, no. War isn't a summer camp, I guess. What's the um, What's the General Sherman's quote? I, I'm I'm surprised I remember this shit. War is hell, and its glory is on all moonshine. That's what it is. Anyway, my bottoms. I'm going to read the notes as they are because I just feel I, I need to. The voiceover letters from the woman who sleeps with her dog. <laughs> just in Like, I got a dog and I sleep. I'm just, I was like, she's going to admit she's banging the dog because she's lonely. Like, please tell me she's banging, banging the dog. I just. You know, keeps her warm at night. Keeps her, you know? Oh, yeah, she just keeps you warm at night. Just what? This whole idea of just like, you have a new letter. Like, no one gives, even Nicholas doesn't give a shit. Like, he just turned around. Also, on this honorable mention I've got, for there's a scene where Peter Stormare eats something from a can and just Nicolas Cage comes in and just like, I, I, need, I need all of this detail, I, 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 whatever. And then Peter Stormare is like, do you know what it is? This is pickled herring. I'm just like, big fucking deal. It's a pickled herring. <laughs> just, what? The, in all fairness, it, this is on the, my bottom sort of on dishonorable mention because it should have been surstroming just because he's Swedish, so he, he, he needs to eat this sort of rotten fish. This would be great. Anyway. Well, that's a, cla- food. a class traitor, and that's why he's on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, another note I have. So number two, the guy with a bazooka looking back at his body and getting a bullet. Like there's this throwaway scene where they're trying to fire a bazooka and then a, f- a guy's body gets a gets a bullet to the head and just turns out what happened and just gets killed i'm just okay it almost feels like it's a it's almost like a piece of slapstick comedy for some reason and then the worst moment in the film although it's in strong contention with the woman who sleeps with her dog is chick or as i like to call him cletus fighting ben at the river because he's a racist like and then he goes like i thought he was a jap just why is this scene there? I don't see, I don't get it. I can I, I know why because the octogenarians in the academy will be like, "Oh, look, he's racist." I th- I think these guys are racist. You know, Marge? I think this is these guys are ra- but this one isn't. This one is. Oh my goodness. You know we're going to vote for this film. That <sighs> horrible. This this is just a like an encapsulation. I just hate this these sort of south park sort of levels of of racism in there it's just ridiculous it's just almost self-parody it's just horrible anyway i think we've done it so thanks for listening and uh by the way wind talk is available to listen uh to watch sorry i think if you live in the uk if you if you have an mgm add-on to your prime then you can watch it there 
or you can just rent or buy it. And if you live in America, I think it's on Showtime. And it's also physical media everywhere. So Blu-ray Blu and DVD widely available. So it's not like it's difficult to track. And yeah, that's everything for this episode of Uncut Gems Podcast. Once again, massive thanks, Daryl, for showing up and then just being the uh, the the, glo the globally recognized Nicholas Cage expert weighing in with your expertise. Uh, very kind. There you go. <laughs> so, by the way, so yeah, so thanks very much for 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 sticking with us for for two hours and a bit. So, and then when can we find you and your stuff? Uh, well, thank you again for inviting me. It's been a very a uh, very lovely discussion, um, which I know has been a, a few months in the making. Uh, but I am over on Cage Rage and Nicholas Cage podcast, where you can join me on my journey to true Cage Nirvana, which is only achievable by watching all the films of the man <laughs> I call the golden hog of Hollywood, Nicholas Cage. Uh, by the time this episode releases, uh, I have actually caught up on all the Nicolas Cage movies, so we're waiting for the next wave of things to come over. Um, you can also get in touch uh, at Cage underscore podcast on Twitter and various other social medias. Um, but a side project coming in the very near future, um, uh, I'll be joining another Cage podcast, uh, Caged In, um, to look at the entire works of uh, Mr. Willem Dafoe, uh, getting Defoe you is coming soon as well. Uh, Hollywood's other madman. So you can check us out on at getting Defoe you, um, Defoe you pod as well uh, for all your Willem Defoe needs. Willem Defoe is an amazing sort of choice to to go after after Gage. This is just great. I loved it so much. I loved it so much. We're out here doing the Lord's work. <laughs> Is there anyone in the world willing to do the do the cage slash default treatment to Ethan Hawke? Because I want to be part of this. Maybe. Well, I mean, next year. <laughs> Will, Willem Dafoe does not stop making good films, so the rest of my life is fully booked up. Uh, but I think Ethan Hawke is uh, is readily available if that's go. the if that's the next step. <laughs> there you go, Nick. Tell us where can we find your stuff. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at NikkiGran97. And there you can find my Linktree, Linktree forward slash Enjoy the Movies with links to my short films and videos and essays and reviews. And of course, as well, to the Death by Adaptation podcast, where every two weeks, me and you and Gledo, my good buddy, we take one classic book and compare and contrast it against its cinematic adaptations. And two days from when this episode drops, there's a special discussion where Hilary White, good friend of the pod, joined us to talk all things Beauty and the Beast, from Jean Cocteau's adaptation to the horrendous 2017 live-action Disney remake. Fabulous. You can also find me, talk about film Twitter, Jakob Flash Letterboxd, flashonfilm.com, clapper occasionally. And you can also follow the show at Uncut Gems Pod everywhere, which is Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, which is kind of sort of dead, but hey. But apparently the Chinese Shh. are spying on us through through TikTok, so probably don't go there anyway. They anyway. are actually. <laughs> they probably are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's no joke. This is ridiculous. It's not like. But but then again, when I when I when I think about this, I feel like I'm buying into Joe Rogan propaganda, and then doesn't. It's not a good look. Anyway. <laughs> Also, check out our website, uncutgemspodcast.com, and browse through all our 
previous episodes, uh, so all the sort of 80-odd episodes of, uh, of Uncut Gems that we did all throughout the, well, almost two years now. And in addition to our bonus shows, which we have on our Patreon, patreon.com slash uncutgemspod is where you can find our monthly bonus tie-ins, which this month is, uh, is hard-boiled, our mini retrospectives, and our 2022 comprehensive David Lynch marathon, because we love Niccolo and Niccolo loves David Lynch, so why the hell not? And then this month we talked about, at this point we have talked about Lost Highway, and then we're gearing up to talk about, I think Straight Story is the next in line. I feel it is. I think it is. Yeah. So you know, like it's easy to kind of predict what's going to happen in, on on the David Lynch marathon. Anyway, so that's pretty much it. You can get in touch uncutgemspod at gmail dot com or uncutgemspodcast dot com slash contact if you would disagree or agree with our takes and you would would like to kind of just share your opinion about Nicolas Cage, uh, Code Talkers, Whitewashing. I don't know John Woo as a as an action filmmaker doing a World War Two drama. I don't know. Or maybe if you want to call me out on being a Spielberg show. Go for it. This is how you do it. And then that's everything for today. And then next week, stay tuned as we will be finishing our August marathon <laughs> uh, by talking about the last film John Woo did in Hollywood, which is Paycheck. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I hope you have a fabulous day and uh, bye-bye. <laughs>